Don't mess up now. <laughs> we always mess up now. Oh, obviously, yeah. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days, and not-so-good-old-days, of World Championship Wrestling Series by Series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm joined by the founder, and only member, of the Jimmy King Fan Club, Alec Bridgen. You know, someone had to do it, and decided it had to be me. (laughs) How's it going tonight, Al? How's it going? How's it going to you? It's going good. It's going good. It's amazing. We're at the end of an of another series, our third series. Wow! Right? Yeah, it's just like unbelievable that we've yeah gone through that so much. And you consider that Starcade basically two series worth of content. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We're, I, th- I think that means we're overachievers. Oh yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm 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 happy to claim credit for that. I'm t- I'm, I'm called many things, and I would like to say that be one of them. Yes. <laughs> Tonight we are taking a look at Slambury 2000. Sponsored by Western Union Money Transfer, because it's the year 2000, and boy, could WCW use the sponsorship dollars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Slambury 2000 was held on May 7th, 2000, at the Kemper Arena, now the Hy-Vee Arena, in St. Louis, Missouri, in front of 7,165 fans, of which 4,862 paid. Hmm. Interestingly, those would be really good numbers for the Hy-Vee Arena today, as today it holds about 8,500 people. Oh. Unfortunately, back in the year 2000, as the Kemper Arena, it could hold 19,500, so not so good. No, not so much. Would they add more bathroom to take up the space, or...? Well, it was actually converted to a youth sports facility starting in 2017. Oh, so massive change in its purpose, basically. I see that. Yeah, it would be different. Yeah. The Kemper Arena, sadly, is most famous in pro wrestling for WWE's Over the Edge 1999 on May 23rd, 1999, at which Owen Hart, Bret Hart's younger brother, was performing his ring entrance by descending by rope to the ring when the harness line failed, dropping him 70 feet to the ring. Mm. He died of his injuries later that evening. The Kemper Arena would, in October, host a WCW Nitro in which Bret Hart and Chris Benoit did a match to honor the memory of Owen Hart. It's a sad history, and one that unfortunately should have been considered more in certain moments on this show. Yeah, and unfortunately, the tribute show is as own controversy because of who's involved. Yeah, it wasn't at the time. No, at obviously, least we yeah. can say that. It's unfortunate. It's just unfortunate that a tribute match for someone like Owen Hart is ruined because of someone else's decisions. Yeah. Slambury 2000 also earned 52,000 pay-per-view buys. 2000 is a very bad year for WCW, where only a single pay-per-view, Spring Stampede 2000, reaches 100,000 buys. That's surprising, because that's not a good show. No, it isn't. But admittedly, you don't know that it's going to be a bad show going in. True. Yeah. 52,000, though, is on the low end, even for the year 2000. Only three of the 12 shows in the year score less buys. And indeed, if we include the three shows from 2001 as well, only four of the 15 shows score less buys. Wow. Worse, Spring Stampede 2000 was only one month prior to this. Yes. So they lost close to half their audience in a single month. 
It's tempting to blame all of that on the Build to Slam Bree 2000, but believe me, as we'll cover when we get to that series, and as you just mentioned, Al, Spring Stampede 2000 definitely deserves its share of the blame. Mm-hmm. I can easily see you losing close to half your audience after that show. Yeah. There's 14 matches, and one of them is Radio Shock Jock Man Cow versus Jimmy Hart. Yes. <laughs> it's like you won at a heart on the show, but you picked the wrong one. Exactly. <laughs> but that's Spring Stampede. So what about Slamboree 2000? Did a smaller audience get a better show? To find out, let's go to the ring. So Al, there's a overarching angle going on leading into this show, isn't there? Correct. So to give you a little background, you have to remember that first, the big booker WCW had was Eric Bischoff, who they fired because things were not going well. They then brought in Vince Russo from the WWF, And they fired him because things were not going well. Very quickly. Very quickly, yes. (laughs) So naturally, when they needed a new booker and they got tired of Kevin Sullivan, they thought, hey, those two guys we just recently fired, what if we hired both of them at the same time? (laughs) That's a brilliant idea. I guess in theory, the idea is like they'd correct for each other's mistakes, but... Yeah, that was the concept of that Bischoff was sort of the breaks for the crazy stories. So Russo was great at pitching all sorts of outlandish crash TV ideas. And Bischoff maybe we could filter those, but as we'll see, that's if he did that, he didn't do a really good job at all. <laughs> so we'll cover this more in depth, obviously, when we cover Spring AP, which we hinted at a couple of times. But basically, the Nitro before that, they did a reset. As part of the reset, they vacated all the titles, and all champions then had to go into matches to regain the titles they just had. Bischoff and Russo turned heel and decided to form a faction called the New Blood. The idea of the New Blood, it was young, up-and-coming talent that couldn't get a chance to perform and get a spotlight because the old guard was there taking all the, all the money and all the attention and all the airtime. The roster of this group includes Scott Steiner, Chris Candido, Sean Stasiak, Chuck Palumbo, Buff Bagwell, Vampiro, Mike Awesome, Jeff Jarrett, Billy Kidman, Ernest Miller, The Filthy Animals, and Shane Douglas. So obviously, if you've listened to any of our show, first off, thank you. <laughs> Second off, you'll notice some of the names you've seen and heard of before. Cooking on a show is not yeah. recent to this. Yeah, like, like some some of those I can totally see as new blood people. Yes. But I like that the very first name you mentioned was Scott Steiner. Oh, yeah. Who has been around since, I believe it was 1989 that he first showed Something up. Something like that. Yeah. 89 or 90s in that time. He's been around for 11 years. Yes. I think that's definitively not new blood. No. I mean, the fact that we had... Shane Douglas on the previous series, Wrestle War, yes. which stopped in 1992, should tell you a lot about that. Yes. He has at least a recent return to WCW, but right. <laughs> still. And obviously a lot of these guys, even outside of WCW, aren't necessarily new blood as far as wrestlers go. Right. Mike Osman had a fairly lengthy career before this. Jeff Jarrett goes way back, even in and out of WCW. Right. But there's, so there's some promise here with people that we're on the uh, the verge of stardom and really could break through with this. There's an idea here, but obviously they fill with people that don't really quite fit the theme. So to counter that, the group that is going against New Blood is called the Millionaires Club. I think the idea was to be derisive. Like, they're the millionaires, so you shouldn't care about them, you shouldn't be invested in them, because they're not like you. They have a mansion and, you know, private jets. Is the club named by 
Eric Bischoff, and then they just kind of adopt the name, or is it... I believe it's a Bischoff name. I remember exactly, but yeah. He, like, does it as an insult, and then they yeah. just are like, like we do with Yankee Doodle, take the insult and turn it into a, something that we use. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think... I believe they don't brand themselves that, but it's like, oh, darn, I'm a millionaire. That's true. Thanks, <laughs> I guess. Like, yes, Mr. Bischoff, thank you for the compliment. <laughs> yes. Also, the person that made me a millionaire was, well, you, in a lot of these cases. Yes. <laughs> So the roster of that group includes Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, Kevin Nash, Diamond Dallas Page, Sting, Kurt Hennig, Lex Luger, and Sid Vicious. It all but vanished shortly after this reset. It's kind of sad if you think about it. I know you're not a fan of Sid Vicious, and I'm not his. I'm not in his fan club either necessarily. But he's the world champion the night reset Nitro, and he's not even on this show like a month later. Yeah, that's kind of stunning. He's not featured in any way. Not even like doing a run in. Yeah, he's just gone. Also, muddying things a bit is there's people that aren't technically part of the Millionaires Club. There's Millionaires Club of adjacent people. I guess they can't call people like, say, um, uh, Hugh Morris, Booker T, and Horace Hogan millionaires, just logistically. But they also work with them. You know, yeah. With Chris Canyon as well. And even though Champagne's in his name, he was actually not that rich. <laughs> so it's weird that it's already a us versus them thing. And also, there's these guys here, so it's a little confusing. I think a couple shows ago, we discussed, like, you had the NWO, and then you had Bret Hart, who wasn't quite in the NWO, yes. but was working with them. So I guess it's that kind of idea. It's just starting rather quickly into that kind of idea. Yeah. It's it makes it harder to tell who the good bad guy is when there's already this sort of mudding of all this mm-hmm. yeah. Other people have commented on this, but I, I definitely agree. It feels like the face and heel alignments here are a little bit backwards. Yes. These young up-and-comers haven't been able to break through, mm-hmm. and the older guard is holding them down and occupying the, the top spots and everything, and we're cheering for the older guard. Yes. Then the the young up-and-comers are the bad guys in this feud. Right. And I guess the idea is that it's disingenuous, or they're blaming others for their own lack of success or something like that. Yeah. But it is a weird... It's just a weird setup for things. Yeah. It feels like maybe you could have tried to turn them heal like actually had them do heelish thing but they don't yeah yeah i guess i guess on a certain level it's like we've just proved in 1999 no one's ever going to boo sting no because everyone loves him yes you have a hard time oftentimes getting people to boo rick flair at this period because he's just beloved by the traditional wrestling right he passed above like sort of facing those dynamic yeah he's beyond the concept of alignment in wrestling Yeah. yeah so i think they would have maybe done better to make it about tradition versus brashness and disrespect yeah sure ape the nwa angle a little bit more i guess yeah sure is the thing i i do appreciate they at least did not label it nwo again <laughs> yes we just went through the last nwo a little bit yeah. lead up to this as well but i think if they'd maybe aped that idea a little bit more and made it about tradition versus disrespect for tradition yeah rather than we want opportunities and we won't give you opportunities yes yeah it might have come off a little bit better i agree yeah <laughs> So that sort of goes throughout the whole show and the company. It built up to this and in the follow-up month there this as well. All right. Our show opens with the 2000-era WCW logo glaring at us for a bit, and then cuts to a video package covering an over-the-top rope battle royale on the previous Thunder to determine the winner of a world title shot at the Great American Bash. Yep. That's not this show. No. 
Anyway, this was between the two warring factions, the New Blood and the Millionaires Club. And after Randy Savage just kind of made an appearance, uh-huh. Ric Flair ended up winning the match and the title shot, which will matter in about a month. Give or take, yes. Why are we seeing this tonight? Yeah. <laughs> for that matter, why did they hold the Battle Royale for the title shot before the pay-per-view, before the pay-per-view that they yeah. were going to do it for? Couldn't this wait until the next Monday? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a bit towards the end of that match where the idea is Jeff Jarrett and DP, who obviously have big match in this show, are fighting the entryway and they sort of climb up on a partial metal thing. They're fighting, you know, they're doing the thing where they climb up and punch with one hand. And, right. Know. The idea is that Dave Rickett's going to run in and help DP. However, he runs over with a guitar in hand and suddenly falls to the floor. Okay. Because he took a step or two too far. The ground underneath them was gimmicked to break when they fell oh. through it. And he just stepped right on and fell through, and they had to sort of improvise, and like, that didn't happen. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> it basically oh. the Kelsey Grammer, where you just only fall through the, through the hole unexpectedly. <laughs> yeah. Oh. They wisely cut that from the recap. Yes, that, that's good. As we see a big fancy bus pulling up outside the arena, Tony Schiavone welcomes us to the show. Tony reminds us that this is sponsored by Western Union, presumably because WCW gets paid by the mention. Yes. (laughs) The bus riders disembark. They are the Millionaires Club, featuring again long-standing WCW performers like Diamond Dallas Page, Ric Flair, Sting, Lex Luger, Hulk Hogan, and company. Diamond Dallas Page is for some reason wearing a shirt that reads Pain, but with what appears to be the Pepsi logo over the eye. I guess he prefers Coca-Cola? He's more of an RC kind of guy. (laughs) Cut to a dressing room where we see Eric Bischoff and his evil New Blood faction watching the Millionaires Club arrive on a surprisingly tiny television set. They joke about Hulk Hogan's arrival, and we cut to another video package. Why not? (laughs) For seven years, I have dreamt of getting my paws on Ric Flair. You made a lifetime on a try to beat me. The franchise just wiped out the Nature Boy with a bat. You have been franchised, Nature Boy. This is personal. I am the Batman. Robert me. you interfere with that, I get you for five minutes. I am going to show you what it's like to walk around with your humanity stripped, just like I have, Sting. Right now, I feel like rumping, stumping, pre-garden, Coming to my world, boy. The hunter has become the hunted. Hulk Hogan is the biggest egomaniac of them all. Who in the hell do you think you are, kid? Free market champion three and Hulk Hogan zero. Do you hear? It's the sound of your career coming to an end, brother. Terry Belay on a mission is what it is here. Guess who the special referee is? Moi, me, brother. David Arquette won the world title. I don't deserve to be the world heavyweight champion. No kidding. I'm going to put it up for grabs to DDP and Jeff Jarrett in the three cage match. Who got made your commissioner, Slappy? Your skinny little rear end is going to be in the ring. It's a triple dance. And now, Western Union, the fastest witness in money worldwide, presents Slamboree. Brought to you by Western Union. Pay us. Yes. <laughs> the video package goes over Ric Flair versus Shane Douglas, Sting versus Vampiro, Billy Kidman versus Hulk Hogan, and DDP versus David Arquette versus Jeff Jarrett for the world title. 
is done in this really weird format with three little videos playing on the top and one bigger one stretched across the bottom of the screen. It's like if they did a four-player split-screen video game, mm-hmm. but the designer decided that three of the players didn't actually need to see what was happening. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a bad design for sure. It's kind of stylish at first, but it makes it hard to know what to pay attention to, so I wouldn't have kept it going for the whole thing, at least. No. I could see maybe in the bottom of the screen for, like, name graphics or something, not for video running. Yeah, yeah. Like... Put, like, the graphics thing with the matches while the videos are running on three things. I think that could work. Maybe, maybe. Something better than what they did, for sure. Or just change it up occasionally, at least. Yeah, it'd be nice. The package does at least show who's fighting and kind of occasionally manage to give an idea of the storylines, but it quickly gets irritating with the format and the rapid transitions between different clips. Back to Tony, and he runs down the card and introduces his co-hosts, Scott Hudson and... <sighs> Mark Madden. <laughs> we see shots of the arena, an elevated entrance ramp tonight, which is nice. Mm-hmm. I prefer that setup. Tony points out the three-tiered cage above the ring, and the entrances for the first match start up as the announcers note that the Millionaires Club has had a lot of success lately, and the New Blood have to be worried about their chances of regaining the world title. Madden says the club will fall apart because of their egos, and the New Blood will take a clean sweep. So our first match is Chris Candido with Tammy Sitch versus the artist formerly known as Prince Ikea with Paisley for Candido's WCW Cruiserweight Championship. The referee for this one is Mickey J. As I mentioned before, Russo came in very briefly and was fired. During his time there, he went about giving the lower mid-card guys new gimmicks, trying to elevate them in theory, but mostly didn't really work that well. I would say de-elevate them for the most yes. part. It wasn't the goal, but that definitely was the result, yeah. So as part of that, Prince Iakea became the artist for when it was Prince Iakea, a reference to, if you are all to remember this, when Prince was protesting his record label and decided he wouldn't go by Prince, and he went by a symbol. Well, he was often known as Tafcap, a.k.a. the artist for known as Prince. <laughs> so this is a very dated reference, even for the time. This means it's Prince Iakea wrestling the same, but kind of dressed like Prince, usually having some purple on, some frills, but other than that, not yeah. yeah. He actually was Cruiserweight Champion before the reset Nitro. He then had to go back in a tournament to regain the title, which, as you can probably guess from this, was one with Chris Candido instead. Ah, okay. So he has something to gain against the guy that beat him with the title he really shouldn't have lost in the first place. Yeah. And the quest to prove that he was, in fact, worthy of being champion. Yes. Weirdly, champion Candido enters first. Tammy makes a show-me-state joke and starts a strip tease because that's WCW in the year 2000. Oh, yeah. Candido very poorly tries to hide it, basically utterly failing to ever be on the right side to block the crowd from seeing Tammy. But before things go very far, we cut to the artist's entrance. The purple light and falling shiny confetti do look pretty cool, actually, but, yeah. but he just kind of walks out. Yeah. He doesn't do anything with it. Prince had swagger, and he had a style more than just the outfit, and it's not translated. Yeah. Paisley at least has some showmanship, playing to the crowd a little. Yes. Madden removes any hope the show might have some dignity or class by describing pro wrestling as hot cruiserweight action and hot tramps. Mm. <sighs> and saying he prefers the bleach blonde bimbo look. Aye. I get that he's the heel announcer, but he's not an interesting bad guy. He just says the most offensive thing he can think to say at any moment. Yeah. 
He just your pervy uncle, basically. Yeah. Just not a good look or sound. Tony calls it Madden's personal preference and notes that Candido and the artist are apparently both new blood. I guess. <laughs> As both were on Bischoff's side in that battle royale from the video package. Mm. It's a weird way to open the show that you're selling as Millionaire's Club versus New Blood, yeah. having New Blood fight each other. That's true, yeah. Artist keeps his big billowy shirt on to wrestle, which is a very strange look. Yeah. Candido gets an early wheelbarrow victory roll for two, but then tries it again, which is kind of strange because it's normally a counter to someone else's move. Yes. Yeah. Artist mostly manages to counter out of that into a bridging German suplex for two. He kind of slips his grip for a second, but manages to catch himself. Yeah. Artist dumps a charging Candido out of the ring, and Tammy shrieks. Candido lands on a cable, and there's an audio buzz, so that one might have been important. <laughs> Candido sends Artist to the guardrail, then dives off the top rope to the outside, and it totally looks like Artist spears him out of the air, but Tony says Candido landed the move, so who knows. It's, it's weird looking, yeah. Candido sets a chair on the entrance ramp, then goes for a pile driver nowhere near it. <laughs> Artist back body drops out of it. Candido rolls inside. Artist pins him for two, and we see a nice shot of the Western Union logo on the mat. Pay us! <laughs> Artist Hurricanrana, but Candido gets, uh, grab your head and we'll both fall down for two. <laughs> yeah, good description. I think it might have been supposed to be a side headlock takeover, but they just, like, don't flip in anywhere remotely close to the right way <laughs> and just kind of fall down. Yeah, that's true. Madden keeps trying to sell us on Candido having this massive strength advantage, but they're almost the same size. Yeah. Candido sends artists outside again, and you can actually hear a vacuum cleaner trying to clean up all the confetti. Oh, nice. <laughs> As we'll see later in the show, it will not succeed. No, it will not. <laughs> Artist gets on the apron and suplexes Candido outside, just dropping the poor guy so he awkwardly falls out on his own. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Ow. Back in, Artist Snapmare, of all things, gets two and three-fourths. Tammy distracts Artist, and Candido punches him in the balls, but goes down early on a whip, and Artist kind of manages a powerbomb. <laughs> Hudson covers by saying Candido tried to escape, but Artist just clearly didn't have his grip right. Yep. Artist jumps off the second rope, but Candido catches him. If by catches, we mean he kind of stands there with his arms out while Artist lands next to him. <laughs> Candido puts Artist on top, but slips off while trying a Hurricane Rana. <laughs> oh my gosh. He sells being dazed, so either he's trying to cover his own botch, or Artist was supposed to have actually done something to counter and forgot. <laughs> I feel like it's the latter. <laughs> Probably. Artist top rope schoolboy roll-up completely misses. Oh man. So Candido stumbles back of his own, own volition to complete the move. <laughs> it gets two. That may have been... The most botchy sequence that we have seen since, like, Skyscrapers versus yeah. Motor City Madman and Big Cat, I think. I think that's it, yeah. It's about the same length as that entire match and about as many botches. That's that's true, yeah. That's sad. <laughs> Oof. Candido eye poke and kind of a neat rotating body slam, but Artist interrupts the top rope move with a second rope Samoan drop for zero, as Tammy distracts Jay by claiming something's wrong with her shoe. I'm not sure why he should care. Yeah, right? Paisley fights Tammy, but Tammy grabs Chekhov's chair on the entrance ramp and swings for Paisley, as Artist is, for some reason, hugging her. Not sure why. <laughs> so, she mostly hits the Artist. 
It's an interesting variant on the I accidentally hit the wrong person spot because she still hits someone she's okay with hitting. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Paisley, for some reason, sells choking from taking a partial chair shot, and Candido pins artist for three as artist kicks out late because they screwed up their timing. Yep. The bell rings, but Jay signals the match isn't over, but Candido then just hits a pile driver and a top rope diving headbutt for the three count and the win. If there was that little left, why didn't they just let the pin off the chair shot stand? Right? <laughs> Tammy gets in to celebrate with Candido, putting the belt on him, but Paisley attacks her and then hits one of the worst ball shots ever on mm-hmm. Candido. She just kind of places her arm in the general area with no force. Which Starcade is it where the lay does that to Evan Courageous? Is that 99? It's 99, yeah. That one's really bad. Too. It's like, yeah, they, both of them are about equivalent of, like, you can't tell that's actually a hit. Yes, for sure. Paisley strips Tammy's silver dress off, and Tammy runs away with Candido as Paisley and Artis celebrate not winning. Yeah. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? <laughs> oh, boy. You know, there's bad matches where you're like, you see who involved, and you're like, yeah, this is not going to end well. Like the one we mentioned, the the skyscraper with Mercy Madden, mm-hmm. the cat one. And there's sometimes there's one where you think, okay, this has promise, but for some reason nothing seems to go right. Yeah. It's a shame because I know, we mentioned on a previous show IK is talented. And from what I've seen of Dendito other places, he's talented as well. Yeah. Watching this match, my thought was Norman Smiley must be a miracle worker. Yeah. Because Prince Iakea in that match with Norman Smiley, and I think it's Starcade 98. I believe so. Is actually quite good. Yeah. So, unless Norman Smiley, maybe Norman Smiley was just guiding him through every single step of that match, but mm. it felt like he was a much more talented wrestler than this. I mean, I've seen other Iakea matches as well. I've seen him and Regal. They had a good match together. Mm-hmm. Uh, him and Ultimo Dragon had a match. So, it's not a one-off thing with him. It's like Ultimate Warrior being amazing WrestleMania 6 and like never, ever again. I don't know if it's this miscommunication thing or they just they try something they're not good at, but just like nothing seems to work for them. It's it's people bad for them when they bought so much. Maybe the big billowy shirt is interfering with his concentration. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like keeps making ruffling noises as he's moving and <laughs> <laughs> Any any reason or excuse is a good one, honestly, at this one, yeah. Yeah. Also the idea that so Tammy was gonna do a strip tease at the beginning of the match, but then because the dress is ripped off by somebody else, he's embarrassed? It's, I guess, you know, it's unexpected. you got to build yourself up to it mentally. Oh, okay. Because right? she, she definitely planned to do it. Yeah. She's also wearing... I don't know if it was supposed to look like she wasn't wearing anything, but she was wearing, like, beige, like, tape. Vaguely flesh-colored, like, tape underneath. Yeah, I yeah. think they were trying to make you think that she actually got fully naked, but without actually doing it, because that would get them in loads and loads of trouble. Yes. <laughs> Before that even happens, you can see that underneath her outfit, yes. too. It's obvious. Yes. So it, it's not like they hit it well at all. No. In summary, nothing went well here. No. No, not at all. Yeah, there's there's two matches to talk about here, I guess. There's the match they had planned and the match they actually performed. Yeah. The plan felt like it was generic but okay. Like a simple and slow-paced match. A little weird for the WCW opening matches of this period. Where's the luchadors, by the way? Um, yeah, they're they're around somewhere. Yeah. But I, I think the, the plan would have worked out all right overall. We get a little counter-wrestling, some dives and stunts, and a little bit of interference. The problem is we didn't get that match. No. What we got were like half the spots in this match being at least awkward or at worst entirely botched. Yes. 
at least none of them go so badly that someone actually gets hurt. Mm-hmm. But this was one of the clumsiest matches I think that we've ever watched. Yes. And there's just no covering for some of these spots. No. The top rope diving roll-up is the worst offender, but few things really go right for these guys. And by the end, they're even messing up the timing on kickouts. Yeah. I feel like the timekeeper was just trying to end the match a little early for their sakes when he rang the bell there. <laughs> so never mind the logistics of doing a jumping out of the top rope for a roll-up anyways. Yeah. You're doing so much damage to yourself with that impact that you're really not getting enough of that. And the more traditional one's the sunset flip, but for some reason he does this like sideways one instead. Yeah. Yeah, so really, really poor opener. Yeah. And it shouldn't be. It's probably not the worst opening match we've ever seen, but it's got to be up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like I said, you expect so much more, very least better than this for, from these people involved, and it's a shame. Yeah. Okay, so this will be interesting to talk about. So, a running theme in my follow-up is going to be, what happens in the title in the TV time between now and Great American Bash? I won't everything that happens on that show or after it. So just bearing that in mind, this is recovering like a three, maybe four-week period with Nitro and Thunder. Okay. And sometimes house shows being involved. Shortly after the show, Candida would lose the title on Nitro to the pair of Crowbar and Daphne. To the pair? Yes, the pair. Okay. Uh-huh. Daphne would then become the sole champion a week later, feeding Crowbar in a match to decide who the actual champion was. <laughs> I don't want to take him a week. She held it for about two weeks... I believe she lost on the Thunder the week after she won it, basically. Okay. So about a week and a half, maybe. To Chavo Guerrero, who at this point is going to be running Lieutenant Loco, as part of an angle we'll cover later. Oh, boy. He would get the pay-per-view title defense after all of that. Okay. So in three weeks, we went from Candido as champion, to Crowbar and Daphne, to just Daphne, to Chavo Guerrero. <sighs> wow. Okay. This is just one title. Yeah. There's more to come. <laughs> There is so much more to come. Can't fault them for a lack of action? Yeah. <laughs> sure. We cut to the announcers, and they build up the triple cage and how scary it is. Everybody is in gray suits tonight, though only Madam wore a tie. Huh. They match much more than they normally do. That's true. Maybe they're trying to prove us wrong from the Ready to Rumble review. Maybe. <laughs> Madden says DDP or Jarrett can win the title tonight, but not Arquette. And says it's a disgrace that he ever won it. Ugh, I agree with Mark Madden. I feel like a little part of my soul just died. Although, Arcade doesn't need to win the title. He's already champion. Fair point. Fair point. He's just <laughs> wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tony brings up the next match. It's two versus one for the hardcore title. And describes participant Terry Funk as middle-aged and crazy. We get a video package of people throwing Terry Funk around and hitting him with things and slamming him onto tables. I get that they're trying to build up that he's tough, but showing someone repeatedly getting the crap kicked out of him is not really a good way to make him look like he could win a match. True, yeah. Of course, he is facing Screaming Norman Smiley, so maybe. Yes. It's not, not, not a positive video package, for sure. Yeah. So our second match is Screaming Norman Smiley and a mystery partner versus Terry Funk for Funk's WCW World Hardcore Championship. Referee for this one is Nick Patrick, accompanied by Nick Patrick's mustache. There you go. As I was before, there's people that are in either faction, then there's people that are adjacent. Technically, Terry Funk is not part of the Millionaire's Club, although he fits all of the bill as far as an established guy. I guess maybe he didn't have a good accountant, so he can't be part of the Millionaire's Club. Yeah, maybe. So going in the reset night tournament, Milo was champion. 
the whole reluctant hardcore champion thing was totally original idea they came up with on their own. Definitely not based on Crash Holly in any way. <laughs> totally not. Uh, so yeah, he did not win the mini tournament they held to grind new champions that was won by Terry Funk, who, as we mentioned, got beat up a lot. So North Miley technically part of the New Blood, which already again is kind of vague because he's been around a while as well. But he's also not a heel, really. So good luck figuring this out. Yeah. I guess he needs help with us, so he's got a backup in the form of his mystery partner to help him out. We cut backstage, where Funk is walking down the hall with his title belt. He asks the crowd where Norman is, and they point to the bathroom. Deja vu, just a different crapper, Funk says. That's not how deja vu works at all. (laughs) Funk yells for Smiley to come out of the bathroom, but no one does, so Funk pushes the door open so fast it bounces back and nearly hits him in the face. Had one video package, I guess. He kicks open the stall door and reveals a masked man in catcher's gear. The masked man is clearly white, but Funk still asks if he's Norman Smiley. Yeah. <laughs> like a lot of people, he did not see color. I guess so. I think he went to make concussions. He can't actually see color. <laughs> Smiley attacks from behind with a fire extinguisher and batters Funk with trash cans, a garage door, and a Coca-Cola machine. Pay us. <laughs> The masked guy gets in some alleged trash can shots, and Smiley takes the can to do a better one, sending Funk rolling down the ramp for two. More trash can-based offense, but Funk gets annoyed and punches Smiley, then throws him into Mean Gene Okerlund's interview set, knocking it all down. You can actually see Okerlund cowering in the background. Yes, (laughs) nice touch at least. The masked guy climbs on top of some rolls of green fabric and hurls boxes at Funk, but Funk chucks chairs in reply. Tony identifies the fabric as artificial turf for the arena's indoor soccer team. I'm sure the team loved them fighting on top of it. It's a weird homage to Donkey Kong, by the way. (laughs) Yes. Funk kicks Smiley off the pile onto a table of refreshments, then hits him a few times with a can for two. Funk beats Smiley up with an audio-visual equipment cart and a cardboard tube, of all things. Why not? Smiley hurls Funk into some equipment boxes for two. Funk slips while he slams Smiley on a can for two. The masked guy lays in the worst trash can shots you will ever see. Yes. And Funk doesn't even bother to sell, just grabbing the can and hitting him back. (laughs) They keep brawling, and Funk takes the masked guy out onto the entrance ramp, beats him up with a chair, and unmasks him, revealing that he's Ralphus, Chris Jericho's former comedy sidekick slash bodyguard. Funk throws Ralphus into the ring and exposes his butt. Thank you for that. But Smiley attacks with a ladder. Thank you for that. Ralphus wanders around with his butt exposed, and Smiley gets two and three quarters with the dancing chair shot. Smiley lands more weapon shots, does a suggestive dance around Funk's hindquarters, and blocks Funk's chair shot counter. Ralphus imitates Smiley's dance, but gets hit with the same counter he just saw Smiley block. Pay attention, dude. Smiley checks on Ralphus, so Funk smacks Smiley with the chair, then nails Ralphus. Smiley checks on Ralphus again, so Funk rolls Smiley up for the three count and the win. (sighs) Funk holds up his belt in celebration and walks out. The commentators discuss the hardcore belt, staying away from the new blood. So I guess, yeah, like you said, Smiley is part of that faction, technically. I guess, yeah. Regardless of their loss, Smiley and Ralphus dance in the ring, and Smiley kisses Ralphus. Thoughts on this one? Wow, it is not good. This shows <laughs> off to a really interesting start. Yeah. Uh, I mean, outside of the, the supposed comedy aspects of it, it's 
basically people just being hit by things, walking around the backstage, picking up more things, and that's really all there is to it. Mm-hmm. There's at least some amusement with the unintentional interaction with me and Gene Oko in there, but other than that, it's just not interesting or fun to watch. It's just... Like, the Ralph was bad. Like, I'm trying to figure out if that is the joke that he's so bad, or is he legitimately not good at hitting them? I honestly don't know. I, I think that's probably legit, but they kind of... Maybe they kind of recognized it and tried to use it as a joke. Funk clearly plays it up yeah. when he just stops selling for him at all. Right. But, yeah. I, I can see someone like Funk just sort of deciding to do that as well. So yeah. I, I don't know how, how planned this all is. The commentators, like, just aggressively yell at him the entire match to do something, too. It's, it's yeah. bizarre. He often kind of just wanders around near the action, occasionally interfering. Mm-hmm. I also like that they, they don't show you him climbing up that big pile of, I guess, AstroTurf. He's just up there somehow. Yes. Kind of guessing that involved, like, a lot of ladders and there's like, chairs stacking or, like, a forklift of some kind. R- Ralphus is not a small man. No, no. Yeah. And not that that'd be easy to climb anyways. I can see Smiley how I'm getting up that thing, especially Ralphus. There's, there's clearly, like, just, like, a stepladder behind there, and he walks off without filming him. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> this, lots of weapon shots, lots of soap brawling, no humor. Can anyone in WWE make these matches work? <laughs> I'm not the biggest fan of hardcore stuff in general, to be fair, but I could see the appeal of something like this if you got, like, cruiserweights or people that in that sort of league who can do interesting spots and then, you know, occasionally work in weapon shots and tables and stuff. I think that's manageable, but the problem is they're picking people other than Norris Miley who just doesn't get to do anything else. You're picking people, like we covered in the previous show, that really, for one reason or another, can't do anything other than hit people with weapons. So you think putting them in and somehow elevates them, but it just devalues the whole thing. Yeah, it just makes this repetitive mess that yeah. doesn't have any actual storyline. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, for me, this was a 10-minute match that's about 7 or 8 minutes too long. Agreed. It had its moments while Funk and Smiley were doing some of their stuff, and Smiley's really aggressive early moments were actually quite good, Mm -hmm. but it got repetitive really, really fast. I swear, like, every third move in this match is strike with trash can. (laughs) There's surprisingly little variety to this, and once it's through the initial flurry of offense, it slows way down. Yes. It's really distracting, as we mentioned, to see Ralph is just hanging out there, waiting while his partner is getting pinned or hit two inches away from him. I get the feeling they just told Ralph it's like three or four spots, and he got in position too early for all of them. It's very possible, yeah. I definitely could have done without much of the comedy once they got to the ring. Mm-hmm. And the ending's just weird. Smiley checks on Ralphus, gets hit for it, and checks on Ralphus again right after he recovers. Yeah. Did the chair shot give him short-term amnesia? <laughs> That's the only explanation for that ending. It's just a dull comedy hardcore match, which is... Already not my cup of tea. Right. And then done poorly and too long. Yeah. They couldn't, like, agree on what hardcore is supposed to be in this company. Because WWF at this time, they're doing their hardcore stuff. They did a fairly good mix of the comedy stuff with Crash Holly, as I mentioned. They'd have fun with it because he'd fight in, like, in airports and, like, playground, that kind of stuff. The 24-7 stuff with him, in small doses, I thought worked. Mm-hmm. It's in that they're going for that, but then here's Terry Funk, who doesn't seem to fit any of this. And here's North Miley, who shouldn't fit any of this, but until you made him, this is guy who screams all the time and is scared. Yeah. For Terry Funk's style of hardcore match to work, I feel like you need it to actually be a blood feud. 
Yes. Like you need someone else on the other side that's going to give as good as he gets the Magnum TA versus uh, Tully Blanchard kind of yeah. blood feud, sure. destroy each other type of match. Yeah. You can't do that on a regular basis, no. but that kind of works for, you know, a hardcore-ish style. Right. But this style, it's like you've got Terry Funk trying to do a serious-ish hardcore match. Mm -hmm. You've got Norman Smiley trying to do a comedic hardcore match, and you really can't mix the two that well. No. (laughs) Agreed, yeah. We've seen several of WCW's hardcore matches during this period now. We've seen Terry Funk versus Crowbar one. We've seen the uh, Norman Smiley versus Meng one. Mm -hmm. None of them really work. No. It's a style they don't seem to get how to do. and Yeah. They're clearly doing hardcore because hardcore is a thing in wrestling at this time, but they don't get why it's a thing. Mm-hmm. It's a problem. In the build-up to the Great American Bash, Terry Funk would lose the title to Shane Douglas on Nitro, only to regain it the next day on Thunder. <laughs> Jeez. On the following Nitro, as part of the New Blood need to get the hardcore title because they're trying to control the titles for power situation, they set up a match between Terry Funk and Eric Bischoff, which would basically be a giant cheat. Terry Funk would beat up Bischoff at the ringside area. They go to the back. Suddenly, there's no cameras in the back, which is amazing for wrestling at this point. And they come back. Terry Funk's been beat up by other people in New Blood, and then Bischoff gets the pin on him through blade interference to get the title that way. And why does it matter that they're not filmed attacking him? It's a hardcore match. There's no DQs. Yeah. You could have them blatantly attack him all all show long. Yeah. Like, just, just literally have Terry Funk cam in the corner of every match leading up to that, mm-hmm. of people in the new blood ramming his face into a wall for the right. entire time leading up to that match. And it wouldn't matter. You would not be disqualified for it. Correct. It's a hardcore match. And for some reason, they felt they just cut in the middle part of the matchup where somehow they beat up Terry Funk enough to get control back for Bischoff to become champion. <laughs> and if you're wondering why you're not familiar with Eric Bischoff as hardcore champion, well, if one thing is WCW's hardcore title, so that's a big factor. Yeah. The other reason is the, the next week on Nitro, he would give the title up, because he didn't want to be in a hardcore match, and he just wanted it off of Terry Funk. <sighs> so, the recipients of the hardcore title after all that would be Johnny the Bull and Big Vito. Wow. John's favorites. Yes. <laughs> and yes, both of them are hardcore champion. Yeah, kind of figured we were going there. Yes. So naturally, now that you've made this duo of hardcore champions, the only natural thing is to have them town for the tag titles at the Great American Bash. Okay. Yeah. It's just two guys holding a singles title challenging for tag titles. Are they at least challenging in a hardcore match? No. Figured. I'm trying to put way too much logic to this, Bob. <laughs> we are way past that. Hope springs eternal, man. <laughs> yeah. Backstage, a limo has arrived, and David Arquette emerges. Gene comes up to interview him. We're looking outside in Gene Oakland. David Arquette! Yeah. David Arquette, I've been reading all of the publications. Your wife, Courtney Cox, a million dollars an episode. How come you didn't arrive with the Millionaire's Club? Listen here, Mean Gene. I, I got a million dollars of my own money. You see what I'm saying? I got it on my own merit, so I don't need my wife. That's cream money, baby. That's first off. And second off, you know, Diamond Dallas Page doesn't think, you know, I'm a sports entertainer, so so I, just, I had to come alone. But, you know, whatever. I'll just go out there. I'm into this. I'm into it, baby. You know, I'm very curious. You're going to be involved in a very dangerous match tonight for the WCW World Heavyweight title in a triple cage. Your thoughts? I'm scared, Gene. I'm very scared. I mean, don't let the smile fool you. I 
thought this was actually a pretty strong performance by Arquette. Yeah. He does a good job showing some subtle resentment of Gene's questions and of his perception of DDP's attitude towards him. His admission that he's scared of the cage is good, too. It gives him a totally different feeling than a wrestler. Mm-hmm. Even like a heel manager that's actually scared will often try to comedically insist that they're fine and brave and going to keep right, right, yeah. He actually just straight up admits he's afraid. Yeah. I think the only critique that I've got is that he says sports entertainer, which is more of a WWE term, though they do seem to be using it at a couple other points tonight. Yeah. Uh, mostly Mark Madden. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really make sense in this situation. He's trying to get across that DDP doesn't feel like he can make it in a fight. So just use wrestler or fighter for that, not sports entertainer. Right. Other than that, I thought it was quite a promo. Yeah. It like, packs a lot of story into a little bit. I mean, yeah, you hire an actor to pretend to be wrestler, hopefully he can at least be an actor still. Yes. Yeah. So, it was great. He does that well. Yeah, yeah. This is decent, but yeah, it's nothing special, but yeah, it's not bad. So our third match is... The perfect one, Sean Stasiak versus Kurt Hennig. The referee for this one is Charles Robinson. So in the wake of the Reboot Nitro and the sides and the lines being drawn between the groups, Kurt Hennig, who I believe was a heel going into this, tries to align with Bischoff and Russo as, as a little company guy, but they rebuke his offer because they decide Sean Stasiak needs to be his replacement. So now it's the old guard versus the new guard, at least in the most direct fashion we've gotten so far in the show. Yeah. Between these two. They're literally giving Sean Stasiak perfect old gimmick. Admittedly, the gimmick he had in the other company, but still. Yeah, that's, that's true. That is a thing they had problem with, was picking their own gimmick from companies, not getting sued over it. Yes. This company, but yeah. Yeah, you'll notice uh, the announcers during this segment as he's coming out really, really dance around referring to Kurt Hennig as Mr. Perfect. Yes, they do. They're very careful with their wording. Yes. <laughs> we get a good shot of the Western Union logo above the entrance arch. Pay us. <laughs> Hennig's old Mr. Perfect WWF theme, an adaptation of the theme from the 1960s movie Exodus by Ernest Gold, plays as Sean Stasiak enters. They're going all in on this Sean Stasiak is the new Mr. Perfect thing. The actual Mr. Perfect, Kurt Hennig, enters to generic rock guitar. It's okay, but it's no Mr. Perfect theme. On that note, by the way, why isn't Stasiak wearing a singlet? Good point. He should be mimicking the look, too, yes. shouldn't he? Yeah. He should, right? Or at least make a line about how it's like, yeah, I don't need to wear a singlet or something. Yeah. It just, no, he's wearing a normal outfit. You could say, I'm, I'm willing to show off more because my body is perfect. Anything would be great. Stasiak gloats after a couple takedowns, but Hennig counters with a stalling slam, and Stasiak rolls out. Madden talks about Hennig trying to out-wrestle Stasiak and prove he's not perfect, and Hudson says, we won't see Ralphus in this one. Tony starts to agree and then just kind of stops in the middle of his sentence as he realizes that made no sense. Yes. <laughs> Back in, Stasiak works a headlock and hits a crossbody for two, but gets thrown into the ropes on the kickout. Ow. Mm-hmm. The commentators say the match is about pride, and then Tony says, maybe there's something else, too. Sh- shouldn't you guys know what this is all about? You think like you should know that, yeah. Stasiak's sunset flip gets two. We see Chavo Guerrero, Lash LaRue, and Van Hammer of the Misfits in action seated in the front row as Stasiak dumps Hennig outside off-camera. Stasiak chokes Hennig with a cable, which Hudson decries, but Madden and Tony, oddly, support. Yeah, Tony's in a weird spot in the show, for sure. I don't think he cares at no, this point. I, I think that's he's, why, yes. His tone is slightly more into it than it was when he was doing the announcing for the Ready to Rumble matches. Yeah. 
but uh, not by much. No. Back in, Stasiak hits a top rope flying clothesline for two. Hennig tries a slam on the ramp, but his back is hurt, so he can't. Back in, Stasiak slaps on a sleeper hold, and we cut to a guy loudly cheering for Hennig, who then holds up Diamond Dallas Page's autobiography, Positively Page, mm-hmm. and points at it. Product placement. Pay us? Pay us DDP, yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Hennig keeps the arm up on the third check, then dodges a Stasiak top rope dive, so Stasiak eats Matt. Hennig counters Stasiak double axe handles with strikes and gets him in the corner for punches, but Robinson warns him. Hennig smacks Robinson upside the head <laughs> and goes back to the punches, but Robinson warns him again, and Stasiak punts Hennig in the gut, awkwardly slingshots him into the turnbuckle, and hits the Hennig plex, previously the perfect plex, yes. for the three count and the win. Stasiak celebrates the win. Stasiak's Hennig plex is the speed move of the night per Western Union money transfer pay us, brought to you by Western Union, pay us again. <laughs> How do they know there's not going to be a better speed move by the end of the show? Yeah, and also it's not super fast either. It's it's not, no. But they're doing this all the time on Nitros, like all the way since the start of Nitro. They have a, and this is the something-something move of the night yeah. in their replay right after the match happens. And I'm like, every single time, it's you're handing out an award before you've seen the rest of the show. Yeah. Presumably, you're judging all moves on the show against each other to determine what your speed move of the night is. One would think, yeah. But apparently not, though. They're just like, oh my gosh, that's so good. We immediately have to say it. <laughs> yeah, that's an odd thing to do, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you and I will sometimes, when we're talking about shows midway through, be like, oh, that's probably in the running for Match of the Night. Yes. But we don't actually determine it until the end. No, no. <laughs> I got some drama, man. Come on. Anyway, thoughts on this one? It's an interesting one, because I think Hennig's part of it, I think, works really well. I mean, Hennig was obviously a great worker. This, even in later years, when maybe his body did not quite keep up with his mind and you know, what he wants to do, he was always a good worker. He was really fundamentally sound. None of the really awkward botches or mistimed things we got in the first match, especially. No, yeah. You can see with Hennig at all. I thought Stasiak did okay. My name was Stasiak because he doesn't really have any... Big, impressive moves. He didn't mess anything up either. Like I said, his, his crossbody was fine. His clothesline mm-hmm. was good. Yeah. But he needed, like, something extra. Something to go, oh, this is something Stasiak does. You, you, something to look for in a Stasiak match. And I think you are actually looking at him as time went on. I don't think he ever quite got that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how long he's been in it at this point. Are you over it's, been, it? it should, it's not that long. Yeah. I feel like watching him, we're seeing someone early in his career sure. trying to look like he's a more established performer. Right, yeah. So it's forgivable at this point oh, yeah. that he can't do that much, but you definitely do get a sense. Like, he's got the fundamentals fine, right. but he doesn't have anything beyond the fundamentals. Yeah. That goes to a somewhat recurring theme of the show, which is that stuff will be done competently, but some of the like the style or flair, no pun intended, isn't quite there. Again, other than like the first two matches, you can't point to, oh, this movie's messed up, or this so awkward did this, but not something really like stands out in a big way mm-hmm. match either. It's a decent mid-card match. Hennig definitely does his best to make Stasiak look good. Mm-hmm. That slingshot is not the best, but... Yes. That's one of the ones where the guy taking the slingshot can only do so much. Right. It really is on the guy doing the move to get this arms in the position and you know, you know, pivot the right way. Hitting him and putting him with his own move is a nice touch for the story. It's just weird that he wins so cleanly, overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And like the thing that turns him out against Hennig is him decided to hold a by slam for like 20 seconds before dropping him. That is a weird spot, and I think he may have realized that he was doing that in the wrong location. Mm, maybe. As we'll see later in the night, a part of the ramp is gimmicked. True. And he seems oh. to be very close to that part of the ramp when he starts I doing this thing. I thought about that, but that's a good point. Yeah. So I kind of feel like he like improvises a, that's mm. the reason I have to stop, when he realizes, oh crap, I'm in the wrong location. But yeah, if your back's giving out way of a guy down like that, they should just let go and drop him. You have him all the, you have 99% of the way over. So yeah. Yeah. That's actually a good point. That might be what it is, then, maybe. And they learned from, as mentioned, the thunder before the show of watching where gimmick spots to the floor are. Yes. Yeah, I think I'm in agreement. This is basic, but I thought the two played pretty nicely around the idea that Stasiak and Hennig wanted to show each other up, and that Stasiak in particular could not stand being out-wrestled. Mm-hmm. I don't think it goes quite far enough with that, unfortunately. It probably needed to be a little bit longer to really have time to tell its story. Instead, we get a couple harsher moments from Stasiak when Hennig starts to show him up. He gets a little bit more aggressive, mm-hmm. but then it gets more even again really fast. Yeah. An extended Hennig selling sequence would really have helped this. Yeah, I can see that. The action was fine, though, minus, like you said, a little awkwardness in the ending spot. That turnbuckle slingshot doesn't look quite right, but that's really the only actual botch in the No, match. yeah, for sure. And it's nowhere near as serious, like you said, as the first match. No, 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 for sure, yeah. <laughs> so not bad. There's just not much complexity. I think we can mark that down to Stasiak not being very experienced, but at least being sound in the fundamentals. For sure, yeah. I get that. So, as part of the Millionaires versus uh, New Blood story, uh, Great American Bash, they built to a match between Booker T, who we'll see later, who by that point was sadly rebranded G.I. Bro. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Thankfully, that didn't last. That's almost so bad it's good, but not quite. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, you get a match between Booker T and Sazek at the pay-per-view. As far as uh, Hennig goes, fortunately, this is actually his last pay-per-view in WCW. Aww. He would leave the company about 13 days after this, so he's clearly on his way out. Mm. This is probably why he put Stasek over so well. Yeah. Using a little side note, his last match is a pre-tape for WCW Worldwide, where he beat future TNA star Chris Harris. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so this is the end of the whole perfect versus also perfect story. Oh, okay. It's abruptly like this. <laughs> We cut back to the New Bloods dressing room, where Russo is very happy, and tells Scott Steiner he wants Steiner to make it two in a row. Steiner tells Russo to keep his hands off him. (laughs) So our fourth match is Hugh Morris versus Big Papa Pump Scott Steiner with Medeja and Shakira for Steiner's United States heavyweight title. The referee for this one is Jamie Tucker. As mentioned, we had the Nitro reset, which... Led to a mini tournament on Spring Stampede, Derek Conner, new U.S. champion. The winner of that would be Scott Steiner. At the same time, there's a group of wrestlers like the previously shown Lash LaRue, uh, Chava Guerrero, and Van Hammer that would be fired in kayfabe, but still able to just sort of show up on the show, including they entered that Battle Royale on Thunder. Oh, okay. Despite not working the company, which interesting because it makes sense on this show that they're like they actually bought tickets they're there yeah. as fans but they actually participate yeah. in the oh, they, they oh. come out from the back yeah like like they that's work not, there that's not what being fired is <laughs> i know right <laughs> hugh morris is going to sort of lead this group that's fighting it so again now we have an ancillary group that's aligned with millionaires club but not the millionaires club against the new blood right 
they're also for the most part younger or kind of up and coming wrestlers but they're being held down by Bishop, Bishop and Russo instead of by the Millionaires Club yes. so yeah it's it's a mess <laughs> if they could be good writing this could work there's layers to the thing but it no that's where again if we did it as respect for tradition versus disrespect for tradition you could have younger wrestlers really have a, a reason to be in with the millionaires club level yeah you know, call them the traditionalists or something like that yeah, i don't yeah. know and they're ones that respect you know you respect mm-hmm. rick Blair, you respect sting and you want to pattern yourself off of him mm-hmm. or something like that and therefore you uh are joining up with them but when it's the millionaires club and it's exclusively about being the guys that have been around for a really long time. If you're not one of the guys that's been around since the eighties, you can't be part of that group. Really. Yeah. That's, you know, it doesn't make a, a lot of sense then. No, not at all. Morris comes out in gray battle fatigues and grabs a microphone. From here on in, I never want to be called Hugh Morris again. This is what WCW is reduced to in the year 2000, discarding a dumb but inoffensive pun name in favor of a dumb and very offensive pun name. Yes. What an awful, stupid moment. (laughs) Yeah. This, again, was meant to elevate him somehow. Yeah, like naming yourself that that yeah is is meant to elevate how how was that going to elevate you right it's i don't know i don't get it. it's the commentators by the way immediately start calling him captain rection just utterly ignoring the full name not a single one of them repeats it that's good at least <laughs> so our fourth match is Captain Rection versus Big Papa Pump Scott Steiner with Medeja and Shakira for Steiner's United States Heavyweight title. Referee for this one is Jamie Tucker. <laughs> Steiner's sirens hit, and Medeja and Shakira come out, followed a long way back by Scott Steiner himself. Hudson notes that Steiner isn't so much representing the new blood as representing Scott Steiner. I don't disagree with that. <laughs> sure. Steiner yells at various fans on the way down the ramp, and I think we should all be glad that the ramp is elevated to keep him a bit more distant from the crowd. Agreed. People in the crowd inadvisably yell at him further, and he goes out to yell at them. Tony's concerned for their safety, as am I. Yes. Steiner hits heavy strikes, but Rection clotheslines him down, and he rolls out to get some hugs from the ladies. The ladies distract Rection, and Steiner forearms him from behind, but Rection counters a Steiner suplex into an inverted atomic drop, then gets two counts off a spinning wheel kick and a sidewalk slam. He goes up top, and the ladies go up the steps near him, but don't do anything. Yep. So he hits a big elbow to Steiner. He signals for another and goes up again, but this time the ladies push him, so he falls with his legs caught on the ropes. Steiner lands some kicks and the neat rope-assisted neck hold from last year, mm-hmm. and then taunts the misfits in the crowd. Steiner line and elbow drops get two, and Steiner isn't happy with the count, so he tries to choke Tucker. <laughs> Steiner suplex and push-ups. 
The commentary team sounds humiliated to say Rexon's name. Yes. Just a tip for any aspiring wrestlers out there. If the commentary team is embarrassed to say your name, you probably have a bad gimmick. More importantly, if Mark Madden likes making jokes in your name, you have a bad gimmick. Yeah. But even he pretty much avoids it. <laughs> he, he puts a couple jokes in about it, but yeah, as a whole, he avoids it. Steiner chokes Rexon against the middle rope, and the ladies take over while Tucker lectures Steiner. We get a cool Steiner rotating belly-to-belly belly that gets two and nine-tenths, and Tucker gets the heck out of Dodge before Steiner can grab him again. <laughs> Steiner leans through the ropes after him and yells, You suck! <laughs> Steiner bear hug, and Hudson says the captain's going to get demoted. What does that mean in this context? Yeah, it's not an actual rank. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's weird. Rection keeps his arm up on the third check. But Steiner hits a massive overhead belly-to-belly suplex. He goes to yell at the fans. Rexham recovers and lands repeated corner charges, but eats a Steiner line on the third try. Steiner double underhook powerbomb. It almost looked to me like he meant to do the double underhook suplex, but was losing his grip so quickly changed it. Could but be. I'm not sure on that. Rexham counters a tombstone pile driver into his own, then goes up top, but the ladies get in the way. Rexion does his moonsault anyway as they dodge, and Steiner rolls away, but Rexion's foot still catches him right in the back of the head. Ah, it looks so painful. Yeah. Steiner is clearly shaken up by that, but Rexion is down, so Steiner slaps on the Steiner recliner for the submission victory. It's a really fast submission, too. There, yeah. At least, like, seriously selling that hold is brutal. Mm-hmm. Steiner chucks the ref out of the ring and puts the Steiner recliner back on as Hudson makes some horrible comments about the women. The Misfits charge the ring to try to help Rexion, but R&B security, that's Russo and Bischoff's security, run down to hold them back, only for Booker T to rush down the ramp and save Rexion with punches and a Harlem sidekick. Seriously, bass-heavy music plays. I'm guessing that's Booker's current theme. It wasn't the usual, like, Harlem Heat-style one. Yeah, you have to remember... We'll cover this when we go to these shows. This whole angle where Booker T and his brother split up. Right. And technically he's not Booker T, he's just Booker, because he lost the letter T. (laughs) Because that's the thing that happened. (laughs) I forgot about that bit. Yeah. They fight over the letter T. Yeah. That's great. And he loses the Harlem Heat music as well. He gets decent replacement by this point, but yeah. Yeah. Great. Weirdly, Hudson notes that Rexham was a little premature with his moonsault as we watch the replay which is accurate if we're talking about this as a performance, since obviously the plan was for Steiner to fully dodge. But that's out of character, not in character. In character, Rexion's goal was to hit Steiner with the moonsault, so he wasn't premature, he was slow. Yes. (laughs) There's a point where you're just making a joke and doesn't actually make any sense. Yeah. uh, That's where we are. Yeah. So, thoughts on this one. So there's basically two matches going on here. There's Scott Steiner and the captain. So I'm not saying a stupid name. <laughs> and then there's Scott Steiner yelling at the crowd. Yes. Just like the previous show we had with him. He does that a lot. Mm-hmm. Seems like, I don't know if it's more in this show, but it feels like more in the show. I, I feel like it's actually more in the Bagwell match. I felt like it interrupted the momentum more in oh. that match than in this one. but I think this one has more action overall. Mm-hmm. Especially because it's not basically a one-sided squash of both Bagwell. Yes. It's not just Scott Steiner just murdering a man. Yes. So maybe it feels worse to me because 
you get a decent back and forth match until he just stops to yell at random people. Yeah. At least it's someone in character in a storyline to go after the misfits there. Because he knows the general connection they have. Again, no pun intended with the general thing. Because <laughs> he's actually not a general until later, anyways. Scott Steiner can do really press stuff in the ring. For some reason, there's nothing connecting his like big suplexes and slams mm-hmm. to a solid match. It's oddly like early heel Hogan mm-hmm. when when he just has become Hollywood, and like ninety percent of his matches are hit one move and then run outside the ring and jaw at the fans for a little while. Yeah, that's what Scott Steiner is right now. He yeah. like he hits. In his case, like, genuinely impressive moves. Yeah. But then he'll go out of the ring for a while and just, like, waste a lot of time. Mm-hmm. You could cut probably about half his match time. Yes. Just by trimming out the various bits where he goes outside the ring to do nothing. Yes. It's one of the things where this was, like, a tag match. If mm-hmm. it was uh, Captain and someone else against Scott and maybe Rick Steiner, for instance, you could have Scott Steiner come and do those things and then tag out and, you know... Right, and have Rick still keep the match going on. Yeah, exactly. That would work, but yeah, it's just it's an uneven match here, for sure. I thought Morris does well here. The ending is a bit awkward. I don't know why Scott didn't roll towards the corner when he'd be less chance of being hit, but... Yeah, clearly a bit of a timing issue or a direction issue. They, they had yeah. a disagreement about exactly what was going to happen or when right. it was going to happen. It doesn't turn out super-duper badly, but clearly Steiner got hit pretty hard, because mm-hmm. it's rare for Scott Steiner to look like, oh my gosh, i got to shake this off. Right. <laughs> it is funny that 95% of the move goes right for for the guy doing the moonsault, because he does hit the guy, <laughs> but he sells it like just death. Yes. Because he knows he's supposed to coolly miss and wait for Scott Steiner to yeah. move on him. Somewhat like the bit we, we talked about in the first match, where... It looks like the dive to the outside is counter, but apparently that's exactly what the plan was. Right, yeah. I thought this was all right. It had a slow pace, and like you said, Scott Steiner really like breaks the momentum quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when it was moving, it was two big dudes beating the crap out of each other, and it featured some nice big strikes and Steiner's usual excellent array of suplexes. Rection's big charges were nice, too, and as usual, he didn't really stand out, but he worked just fine. Yeah. He's like a good, solid mid-card performer sure. that does perfectly fine in his performance yeah. you know, 99% of the time. Mm-hmm. So I can see why they, use, why they continually use him throughout the years. Sure. The two did have a couple unusual botchy moments that looked a bit scary, and some of the spots with Steiner's valets seemed a bit mistimed, but otherwise it was a reasonably fun big man match. Credit to the ref, by the way, for really playing up Steiner's intimidation, too. I loved when he just, like, sprinted the heck out of the ring yeah. after a two-count. <laughs> it is Scott Steiner. It's not clear how much of that is planned and how it does not <laughs> Fair point. Fair point. But yeah, it works as a story thing. I, I, I really wouldn't want to have been Rection when he felt his foot hit the back of Scott Steiner's head there yeah. and then had to lie there and let Steiner do whatever he was about to do <laughs> to him. <laughs> I was thinking... I hope Scott blames himself for this. I really hope he blames himself for this. Please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. One note, though. Yes. Poor Rection. He gets a new gimmick and then just loses. Yeah. It's not a great start there. I I wonder how common that is. I'd assume that most of the time when somebody gets a new persona, gets rebranded, they get a win to show it off. Uh, Usually, yeah. But I don't know. Maybe it's more common than I think that 
that they no, liked. it's it's that's that's really accurate. Like you bring a guy in up from another show or a brand, you have win a couple matches, beating jobbers or beating lower mid card guys. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very rare to have them come in or re redebut and then lose in that same match. Scott would, ironically enough, be the only stable championship holder in WCW, <laughs> actually making it to the next pay-per-view as still champion. Probably because he told uh, anyone that threatened to take it from him that he would murder them. That is very possible. <laughs> as for the bash, he would actually end up in a very weird handicap asylum match, which basically they build a small domed cage and put it inside the ring, and it's him against Rick Steiner and Tank Abbott. Okay. Yeah, it's not like a full cage over the ring. There's like there's the ring and there's a dome cage inside the ring that fits inside the middle of it. That sounds very strange. Yes, I'm kind of curious to see how that plays out. Me too. Up. Yeah. <laughs> the captain would then form the Full Mistress Nation group with Chavo Guerrero, Lash Larue, The Wall, Van Hammer, and Booker T. I think Booker T is a brief member of the group. Yeah. We go backstage, where Mean Gene Okerlund is with Kenyon. Kenyon, when the New Blood came into power here in WCW, you turned your back on them to help Diamond Dallas Page. Tonight, you're going to be facing one of their members, the impressive Mike Awesome. Yeah, I back Page. I back Page because he's more than a friend. I consider him a brother. And as far as I'm concerned, blood is thicker than water. You got guys like Kidman, Jarrett, Awesome... They suck up to Bischoff and Russo. Nah, Paige taught me a long time ago. You get ahead in this business not by kissing, but by busting your own. And that's exactly what I'm going to do tonight. And in doing so, prove to Mike Awesome that nobody is better than Kang. I am slightly sad that he didn't open this by standing next to Raven and taking a mask off to keep the streak alive. That's true. It was a shame they ended it so early. But other than that, this was a darn good Canyon promo, I thought. Yeah. Builds him up as a hard-working wrestler and a loyal friend to DDP. He got a lot of story across in a very short time, so quite well done. Yeah. I will say the blood is thicker than water thing is confusing a little bit, because one group's called the New Blood. True, yeah, that's a bit of a weird line to pick yeah. when you're fighting the group that's about blood. Right, and you're not related to DDP. Yeah. I, I get what he's going for, but yeah, maybe better better expressions to use. Yeah. Guess, yeah. Maybe they took some sort of like Blood Brothers oath before and Hmm. Yeah, it could be. Both <laughs> from Jersey, who knows? <laughs> no offense, Jersey. Our fifth match is Mike Awesome versus Chris Champagne Canyon. Referee for this one is Billy Silverman. So thanks to something we'll talk about later in the main event, storyline build up. There was a cage match between DDP and Jeff Jarrett to decide who would be the WCW champion. During that match, Mike Awesome would break through the cage and interfere and break up the pin. But thankfully, Kanan would come out and basically end his interference to allow DDP to actually get the win in that match. So, between that and the general New Blood versus Millier's Club and or Millier's Club adjacent people like Canyon, that's what we have for this match. Okay. You also have the little bit where Awesome has sort of started his career killer gimmick. It's not in full yet, but in the build of this match, and in matches after this, you'll get the sort of ambulance aspect to his character, mm, okay. where he wants to beat you up and throw ambulance, which we see at Starcade this year. Okay. So, like, the idea that I'm not just going to beat you, I'm going to put you out of wrestling. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Awesome is out first. Western Union money transfer, pay us. <laughs> we see some shots of Awesome doing power bombs to Hulk Hogan and Canyon. 
Canyon comes out next. I'm not sure what the logo on his tights is supposed to be, but honestly, more than anything else, it looks like a silver silhouette of Squid Girl seven years early. It does, yeah. <laughs> his video package really should have him doing move to awesome to counter that. It should have, yeah, yeah, yeah. Canyon lands strikes, and the two collide off a whip. You can't hurt me, Awesome yells. Do it again. Canyon obliges, but ducks an Awesome clothesline and does his own diving one to take Awesome down. Awesome back elbow sends Canyon rolling out, and Awesome dives over the top rope onto him. Awesome moves the ring steps before throwing Canyon into them, disqualifying himself from a Cena scale rating. That's true. Canyon counters a ring post smash with his own, baseball slides into Awesome, and does a flipping senton off the apron onto him. Nice sequence there. Mm-hmm. Awesome snaps Canyon's neck across the ropes, and he sells like someone strapped a rocket to his chest, going clear across the ring. Yeah. <laughs> awesome has glittery confetti on his back now. Yeah. <laughs> awesome diving clothesline gets two and three quarters. He chucks Canyon outside and beats the crap out of him with a chair, the commentary table, and a water bottle. He actually helpfully takes the cap off the water bottle first, so it gives a nice spray out when he hits yeah. him with it. <laughs> it's definitely a step down, though, from chair to water bottle. A little, a little bit, a little bit, yeah. The commentary team did mention that the DQ rules have been loosened, but this is more like they don't exist at all. Yeah. Which makes you wonder why hardcore matches are a thing when every match is basically hardcore. Basically, yeah. They brawl among the crowd, and Awesome slams Canyon, earning an EC dub chant. For, for a body slam? I guess because it's on the cement. I guess. But, yeah. Awesome chokes Canyon with a camera cable, and Silverman finally bothers to issue a warning. Awesome splash from the apron for two. The commentators rate Awesome in the top five of Powerbomb users, but Hudson says he's far below Kevin Nash, then almost immediately second-guesses himself. Yeah. Awesome's near, near, much nearer to the him <laughs> I was gonna say. than yeah. Kevin Nash is. Yeah, realizes he's nearby, I guess. Canyon counters a back body drop with a sunset flip for one. Awesome casually lariats him, and Tony accidentally calls Awesome Austin. I'd want to switch companies too, Tony. Yeah. Back outside, Awesome beats Canyon up with a chair and tries a top rope chair shot. But Canyon crotches him on the ropes and hits a top rope reverse neckbreaker for two and a half, then reverses a hip toss into a neckbreaker for two. It's almost an inverted diamond cutter there. Yeah. It's quite smooth. Mm-hmm. Awesome's just uh, on his back instead of landing frontwards. Canyon top rope crossbody, but Awesome rolls through for two. Canyon hits what's almost Brock Lesnar's F5 for two and a half. It just rotates the opposite direction. Yeah. Something clearly goes a bit off on an awesome power bomb, and Canyon lands just about on his neck. Yeah. Thankfully, he's okay. Yeah, I think his grip's not quite right, and he's trying to turn him over, mm-hmm. but he sort of falls down instead of... Like, maybe he's trying to readjust his grip on him. Yeah, yeah. It just doesn't have quite the right amount of time to be able to save it, basically. Right. And to be fair to Awesome as well, Canyon is one of those guys that's really tall. Mm-hmm. So I can see issue with his legs going up over his shoulders being an issue as well. But yeah. Either way, it doesn't, doesn't work out. Tony's oh no sounds very legit, yeah. though he does try to cover. Awesome is clearly a bit shaken up by that and goes outside to give Canyon some time. Yeah. The commentary team's voices get a lot more comfortable once they see that Canyon rolls over under his own power. Mm-hmm. Awesome exposes the concrete outside and dives over the ropes into the ring to shoulder block Canyon. 
Awesome attempted powerbomb to the outside, but it's countered by Canyon, countered by Awesome again into a released German suplex. Tony calls that a belly-to-back released German suplex, and Hudson an overhead German suplex, which are both accurate but over-specific. All German suplexes are belly-to-back and overhead. That's just the style of suplex. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Canyon to the ramp, and Awesome sets for a powerbomb off of that, but it's NWO Wolfpack theme count one, as Kevin Nash strides down to beat Awesome up. Silverman thinks about signaling for the bell, but doesn't actually do it until New Blood members Douglas, Candido, Vampiro, and Kidman all charge in to attack Nash. Is there like a quota of wrestlers interfering that we have to reach before a match is called now? Yeah, there's a bar that fills up, like video games. Oh, okay. Yeah. Silverman rules the match a no contest, even though Nash clearly attacked Awesome first. Admittedly, it should have been a DQ win for Canyon several hundred times before, so <laughs> I guess we're even. Fair enough. New Blood beats Nash down, but Flair and Sting charge down to brawl with them. R&B Security charges down, and it's a huge brawl in the middle of the ring. The Millionaires Club and Canyon beat up R&B Security as the New Blood flee. One guy gets chucked through the ropes by Canyon, but lands on the apron and clearly thinks about it for a second, then rolls back in as he realizes he has a once-in-a-lifetime chance to get chopped by Ric Flair. Yes. <laughs> I thought that one, yeah. Canyon poses on the ropes. Big cheers for him and the Millionaires Club. Thoughts on this one? I thought it was a good match. Getting the obvious bit, there's no not a real finish. So that's kind of a shame for me. Yeah. Outside of that, though... This really feels like Awesome and Canyon are trying to prove their worth and rise up the ranks in the company. Mm. They're showing, here's what we can do together. I can see them both in the back, pitching all these ideas to each other. And maybe they should have been a, more, a little more selective of what they did, but they seem like they went with every idea they had. Yeah. So there's a lot going on in this match, maybe sometimes too much, but other than the powerbombs we mentioned and those weird F5-like move that Canyon, I thought it all worked really well. Mm-hmm. It's very much like a showcase kind of match, yeah. like you're saying. It's 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 like, hey guys, here's everything that we can do. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. It's two guys that are willing to take big bones for each other and deliver big moves for each other, trying to show off and mm-hmm. rise in the ranks. Yeah. It's a shame they're in this company, obviously. Obviously, there's only so much you can do, especially you know they don't know they have less than a year to do anything in, Yes, unfortunately. Outside of just the things that didn't quite work and the fact that it's a T convention, I thought they did a lot of good stuff here. The dives were really nice, clotheslines, the hits were really good. I don't really have any complaints other than I think my issue is that I feel like you should have had one of them actually win the match. I would say probably how awesome in the match just mm-hmm. for the storyline purpose. And then afterward go, now that I beat him, I'm gonna take him out. And that's when Kevin Nash gets yes. the save, yeah. Because the way the match plays out is basically he tries to win and can't, so then he's just going to try to basically kill the guy, and then Nash interferes. Yeah. Where it's a better storyline if he can win the match but still wants to injure the guy. Right. That demonstrates just how much of a bad guy he is, that it's yes. like, I've beaten this man and still I want to do more damage to him. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I thought this was a good match. There's lots of enjoyable action, intermixed with some pretty good character work by both. Canyon gets to show off his resilience and his will to keep fighting, not to mention some very innovative moves and counters. Mm-hmm. And Awesome gets to pull off some really brutal moves, one perhaps a bit more so than intended, but everyone got out okay. Yeah. I like the fast pace, but I do feel like they maybe could have taken some more time selling some of the spots. Awesome in particular really springs up fast after taking a big hit sometimes, mm. which does cut the impact a little bit. Yeah, I can see that. Um, the biggest one, I think, for me was 
Canyon does that baseball slide into him and then uh, the sentin off the apron. Mm-hmm. And Awesome's like back up really fast. Right. They don't sometimes let things breathe just a, just right, a bit. Yeah. Which I think goes back to what you said about it being kind of a let's fit in everything. <laughs> yeah. We have, you know, seven minutes to do everything. Let's get it right, done. Yeah. But they did a good job teasing some of the more dangerous spots for drama, but pulling back from them in the end. Mm-hmm. Though one of those moments does also tie into the disappointing ending. Mm. It's a shame that this doesn't get a real conclusion, and it is a strike against the match. But despite that, it was fast-paced, exciting action, and it was quite fun to watch. I agree. We'll cover the bike awesome canyon stuff. There's stuff that happens later in the show, so we'll save that for later. The Kevin Nash interference leads to a very amusing botch on the Thunder after this show. The usual thing happens. Kevin Nash comes out. He's got his bat. He's going to beat up the New Blood people. Russo and the Philly Animals, who had previously run away from him, are up on the front entranceway, and they're taunting him. He's signaling for them to come for a fight. Then suddenly from the sky, the trademark red liquid falls about two feet to his right. It starts flat on the ground, and he sort of looks over at it, and is like, what was it do? Is it touching me at all? I can't do anything about this now. It just, yeah. Someone's just pouring pasta sauce on the ground next to him while he stands there. I, I could picture that, so he's just like, I uh, look over like, well, totally screwed that up. Yeah. Can't do anything now. So they, they cross-cut to the people reacting, and when they cut back, you can see a little bit on him, so I think they tried to adjust it a bit, so he's got a little of the red liquid slash blood in his head, but he can't sell it like people have been selling, where somehow that knocks you out. Yeah. So he just kind of walks up the ramp with a bunch of red stuff over his head, and, and they run away. <laughs> it's it's amazing. Oh, the perils of live TV. Yeah. <laughs> Tony says, the story isn't about who won, which is nobody in this case, but that the Millionaires Club is united. And Hudson agrees that even though they didn't have the best start tonight, they're demonstrating that they can work together. Madden says the club's been united for four days and they're overemphasizing it. Tony just sits there silently annoyed at him for a few moments and then just moves on. Just utterly ignores him. (laughs) Fair enough. You get a real sense over the course of the night that Tony does not like Mark Madden. It sure seems like that. Yeah. yeah. Like, not an in-character thing. No, yeah. Like, no, I'm... out of character. Yeah, yeah. Understood. Tony builds up the upcoming Bagwell versus Luger match and throws to a video package about the match, noting that Vince Russo has said that Miss Elizabeth is his property. Madden agrees with Russo because Madden is a horrible person. Yes. The package actually does a pretty decent job covering the story with clips, but I'm going to let Al cover that when we get to it. We cut backstage where Vince Russo and Elizabeth are watching the show on TV. Russo is excited for her to see something coming up, but then gets upset about her dress because she wore that with, quote, him. I'm guessing that's Luger, probably. Yeah, I believe so. He tells her to go change. She protests, and he says that the fact that he owns her contract means that he can tell her to change clothes. I'm pretty sure that's not how it works. That is correct. So our sixth match is the total package, Lex Luger versus Buff Bagwell. Referee for this one is Jamie Tucker. The story is much more about Miss Elizabeth than Lex Luger, who I think at this point mostly goes by the total package or the package. Yeah, I still don't care. Oh, I know. It's fine. (laughs) Totally. I agree. Yeah, so somehow Vince Russo controls her contract, which is different than just a normal hire you and fire your contract. I have no idea how. They don't really explain it, but apparently her contract's different. 
because she's not a wrestler, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. I assume he's not doing the same thing to meeting Oakland and telling him what to wear and, you know, bossing him around. Maybe he does, and he just happened to like what Gene Okerlund has always worn for his entire career, and he was fine with it. <laughs> Maybe so. Lex Luger, who at this point is back under rebranding with his Terminator entrance, where he poses in the light and flexes, he's setting up for Bagwell, who again, as you mentioned to the beginning, is really not a new blood in any way, having wrestled in this company since like... 1991 or 1992. Yeah, something like yeah. that, yeah. Been tag over several years. He's sort of the guy they send to take Luger out during all this. It's weird that uh, Starcade 1999, I believe, and Slamboree 2000, which are months apart, both have storylines revolving around Miss Elizabeth's contract and Lex Luger. Yeah. <laughs> Someone came with the idea, I guess, and was like, let's keep doing that some more. Yeah. Right. Great. Luger has his epic space movie theme rather than his catchy mid-90s theme. It works fine, but it's more of a heel theme with kind of an intimidating tone, so it's a bit odd when he's back as a face. Yeah. He shows off his muscles for the crowd. It is a pretty good entrance, though I'll miss the mid-90s song. Yeah. It's definitely, it's supposed to be an homage to Terminator, and like appearing in the light when he first comes through and everything, but yeah. It works. I think it works quite well. It's one of the more um, elaborate entrances for the period. There's certain wrestlers in WCW that actually get an entrance where they you know, interact with the design a little bit, yeah. and that works better. I always like that type mm-hmm. of entrance. Agreed. Case in point, Buff comes out to Buff Daddy and gets to point at his fireworks as they go off. Yes. He's having fun, at least. Mm-hmm. The commentators note that Luger is probably thinking more about Russo and Elizabeth than about his opponent here. Bagwell makes rude gestures at the crowd, and an annoyed Luger waits for him. Bagwell and Luger trade muscle poses, and the crowd likes Luger more. Bagwell is stunned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Madden calls Bagwell Mark Bagwell, which is a bit of a flashback. Yeah, a bit. Bagwell lands strikes and sarcastically chants for Luger along with the crowd, which is actually some pretty great heelishness from him. Yeah, true. Tony argues that Elizabeth is not Russo's property, but WCW's, which is not better. No. And Hudson says that Russo's treating Elizabeth like a child, like property which are not the same thing. Hopefully not. (laughs) Madden, of course, makes it even worse. Yeah. Bagwell back elbow gets two as he wastes time dancing. The camera misses a Bagwell strike, and Luger counters a Bagwell suplex with a nice stalling suplex, sells his own strikes, and throws Bagwell outside. Madden seems surprised that Luger overpowered Bagwell. I'm sorry, have you seen Lex Luger? Right? Yeah. (laughs) He's a mountain of muscle. Yeah. Luger beats Bagwell up outside as Tony talks about their prior friendship, including working out at Luger's gym together. Back in, Bagwell double-armed DDT for two, and he uses the ropes for leverage on a side headlock. Luger powers free, and they clothesline each other down, but Bagwell's up first and splashes Luger for two and a half. A really loose Bagwell camel clutch. Yes. And he drops on Luger to stop a power out, but on a second try, Luger knees him in the crotch. (laughs) (laughs) In some terrifically weird timing, we cut backstage and Russo calls for Elizabeth to hurry up. It's the best part. Yeah. So your own guy getting kneed in the crotch is the best part? It is Buff Bagwell. (laughs) Fair point. Fair point. Yeah. Elizabeth comedically tips his chair over, which he basically Luger sells. Yes. And let's comedically kneecaps him with a baseball bat. (laughs) Meanwhile, Luger beats Bagwell up. Elizabeth runs down with a baseball bat as Luger power slams Bagwell 
But Bagwell just sort of ignores the power slam and springs back up to knock Luger down. Yeah. Elizabeth gets in, but Bagwell takes the bat. Luger grabs Bagwell, but he hits Luger with the bat for some epic Luger selling. Yes. Bagwell discards the bat, and Elizabeth retreats with it outside. Bagwell swinging neckbreaker, and he goes up for the buff blockbuster, but Elizabeth hits him with the bat from outside, and he falls. Luger scoops him up for the torture rack, and he submits, giving Luger the win. Luger and Elizabeth hug in the ring, and Madam wonders just what the best part Russo was building up was. Suddenly, Chuck Palumbo runs in, wearing tights with Luger's own gym logo on them, and knocks Luger down, delivering repeated running kicks. Palumbo and Bagwell beat Luger up, as the commentators try to suggest some names for Palumbo, like Better Total Package, or Improved Total Package. I hope they never went with any of those. No. They're pretty lame. Yes. Tony suggests a better one in Complete Package, which at least sounds like an actual gimmick name. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Palumbo, with Bagwell's help, puts Luger in the torture rack, and Bagwell and Palumbo kidnap Elizabeth. So, was Palumbo the best part that Russo wanted Elizabeth to see? I guess? Because if so, he came out like two or three minutes after Russo was trying to hurry Elizabeth to see him. So, I think Russo needs a watch. Yeah, well, he's, he's wearing one, but on his neck. Yeah, that's not where they go, man. No, it is not. Thoughts on this one? Fairly avid for me, honestly. If I remember back to Starcade 97, we had the match between the two of them. That was an eternity, yes. It, it really was. That was a real slog. Thankfully, this one is not nearly that bad. It's about half the length, right? Yeah. It's a little le- little less than half the length, but yeah. It feels like half the length for sure. Mm-hmm. It's not like there's more action, it's just, it's just paced better for sure. Yeah. For his part, as you mentioned, Bagwell does do a pretty good heel, reacting with the crowd, and he does all his usual shtick. Luger gives you some good Lego selling, although I think we've gotten better overall. Yeah, he, he doesn't do as much of it in this one, but the ones that he does are quite epic. You gotta wait a little while for a big Luger selfie. Yeah. yeah. That one from the baseball bat was, was just amazing, though. Yes, for sure. Yeah, no, it's, this one's fine. It's fairly forgettable. Uh, I think for me as a whole, the ending is a bit busy with her breaking out from the back in the video package, presumably, and then coming out and then her, all the interference, and then the interference that eventually works out. I think they get to the right outcome. It is funny that we have two shows in a row now where people hit... Uh, Bagwell in the back was going for his move. That's true. Because last year it was Rick time with a chair. Yeah, yeah. And both times he has the weapon originally and then discards it. Yes. He has not learned his lesson. He has not. <laughs> of the two we've gotten, the match of these two people is definitely the better one, but it's still next special, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought this was respectable. Luger seemed a little muted character-wise, but I think he was trying to sell distraction. Mm-hmm. Bagwell had some pretty good moments of heelishness, especially that sarcastic chanting with the crowd bit. That was pretty gold. The match had kind of an 80s feel to me. It's built around like two or three big moves rather than chains of them like Awesome and Canyon. But the moves were well performed and felt impactful, save for that one power slam that Bagwell basically no-sold to get to the ending. Yeah, right. I don't know if the timing was just off so he knew he had to get up fast, but something went off on that bit. Yeah, for sure. It's a pretty standard Luger match, but it kept moving reasonably well, and it was a decent watch. Like you said, way better than their attempt at uh, Starcade 97, probably because it was only about half the length. I recall us mentioning at that point, this felt like a like eight-minute match 
done as a 15 minute match or something like yeah, that. Something like that. Yeah. Now we got like an eight minute match. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I thought they did a respectable job with this, but like you said, it's nothing that stands out. Yeah. Uh, Ligger will continue to be targeted by the New Blood as he stand up for Fizz. They'd actually build up something actually years in the making on the following Nitro and Thunders where they would actually book Elizabeth in an actual match. Not great, obviously. It's more of her punching an experienced wrestler, but they make a big deal of how, you know, I'm going to make you wrestle as part of your contract mm-hmm. or something. Which, going back to Mean Gene, I wonder if Mean Gene didn't wrestle more. If, he, if Russo was making him work out <laughs> shows, maybe. Mean Gene, cruiserweight champion. Yeah, I mean... He's if, probably got a moonsault or two in him, right? I see that, yeah. <laughs> I guess you could at least throw him off the top rope. Yes. For a moonsault, it would look the same, probably. <laughs> I'm sure he'd be happy about it. Obviously, they're building up the whole Chuck Blombo's trying to replace like Luger thing, like with Sean Stasiak and Perfect. Thankfully, Luger's not leaving like Hennig did, so that'll play out more in storyline as going yeah. forward. Palumbo feels like an odd choice, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. He, like, he? He has a good look, don't get me wrong, but yeah. he doesn't have this like absolute ripped appearance right, like, yeah. like Alex Luger does. I think we were saying we watched this originally, you probably should have switched Stasiak and Palumbo here. Yeah, like Palumbo looks more like the kind of guy to do like a Mr. Perfect yeah. gimmick, and Stasiak looks more like the kind of guy to do a uh, Luger gimmick. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's telling that he first time he does the rack to the guy he's trying to steal from, he needs help doing it. Yes, that that that's not a great look. I I don't know if he actually needed the help or if they were just being like, hey, we're cooperating, but it doesn't really look right when you're trying to take over that role. Because Luger doesn't ever need help doing that. No, he might take a few tries, like with that one <laughs> with, match roadblock. Yeah, yes, <laughs> but he made it work. Still one of my favorite Lex Luger moments in WCW, just for how like genially he handles that. Yeah. Just one more time. I can get it. (laughs) All right. We go backstage where Shane Douglas is with Mean Gene. Shane Douglas. No, no, no. Get it right, Mean Gene. It's the franchise. Franchise Shane Douglas, nearly a decade of bad blood, comes to a boiling point tonight. Does it? As you beat the nature boy, Ric Flair. Seven years. Seven long and torturous years of listening to the nature boy's BS. You've heard it. I'm a limo riding, jet flying, son of a gun. To be the man, whoo, you gotta beat the man. I'm the dirtiest player in the game. It goes on and on, and it ends tonight. I'm sick and tired of hearing it. Nature boy, look into my eyes. The window on a man's soul. Tonight, Nate, I retire your once and for all. And when the dust settles, you will know you just got your franchise. <laughs> Amusingly, during this, you can kind of hear Buff Bagwell's music in the background at one point. Oh, nice. So I imagine that's when Buff actually reached the backstage area and like opened a door or curtain or something. Oh, okay. Because it's not at the very beginning. It's like halfway through it, and yeah. suddenly you hear, Buff, Daddy! And you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <that's funny. laughs> this was okay. I liked Douglas's bit towards the end where he grabs the camera and forces it to look into his eyes in particular. The, yeah. like windows to the man's soul bit. Yeah. I'm not really sure where he gets his timeline, though. Flair has had a much longer career than just seven years. I'm guessing it's maybe from where Flair came back to WCW in 93, because that would be seven years, yeah. that to 2000. But he realizes Flair was around before that, right? Right, yeah, he does, yeah. <laughs> if I remember the timeline right, he leaves, because we covered the show where he's supposedly on it, but actually it's Tom Zink in Damascus, right. Shane Douglas, that's 92. Yeah. 
So at some point in 93, he goes, starts working the NWA, and then does this whole bit, obviously, working with ECW, where he throws the title down and all mm-hmm. that. The whole thing is really him feeling like he's going to challenge Flair, and Flair not ever really responding to him. Yeah, it, it's strange, because it's like, he talks about, you know, listening to Flair for seven years, but Douglas was in different companies from Flair for most of that seven years. Correct, yeah. So I guess he's just admitting that he tuned into WCW the entire time that he was working in other companies. So yeah. quite a compliment, actually, which yeah, I don't yeah. think is his intent. No, no. It's one of the things where it, it, sh- it should be backwards. Because Shane Douglas says the whole thing with the NWA title, where he throws it down, which is the title that Flair obviously held multiple times. It should be like, once he does that, Flair hates him for disrespecting the lineage of this. And to your point earlier about what the angle should be with the whole company, it should be the respect versus disrespect thing. Yeah. Shane definitely fits that. But it's just funny that the guy trying to do all stuff to get attention and go against authority is the one that gets no attention from Flair (laughs) during this whole thing. It really feels like Shane's been angry for seven years for some reason, and Ric Flair has barely noticed his existence for seven years. It's about how it works, yeah. Yeah. So, our seventh match is the franchise other than Sting, Shane Douglas, versus the Nature Boy, other than Buddy Rogers and Buddy Landell, Ric Flair. <laughs> Referee for this one is Charles Robinson. Uh, yeah, there's really not much more than we've covered. There's the whole Shane Douglas wants to get rid of Ric Flair thing, the Thunder Battle Royal, which Ric Flair won to get a title shot in a feature pay-per-view. And yes, that is Randy Savage's final appearance in the company ever. Because <laughs> <laughs> he comes out to help the Millionaire's Club get the winner of the New Blood um, in this battle world, which he enters, but the enter actually gets eliminated. The match ends without him being eliminated, but Flair kind of wins, and I guess they just don't care. They could have at least referenced that bit where he uh, is in the Royal Rumble and like tries to pin Yokozuna or something. Yeah. <laughs> or the year before where he dives out and they have to pretend like that doesn't count as well. <laughs> There's a weird sign in the crowd. DDP gets burnt light blunt. What? I mean, yeah. Um, what does that mean? Is that is that a horrible reference? It's probably a horrible reference. Well, I to me like a blunt, like um, like a marijuana thing. But I don't know what the him being burnt like that. I don't. I don't get it. Yeah. I don't get it at all. You think he like he's too tan? I don't know. Maybe. Douglas's music is really cool, actually, with this organ opening that transitions to rock guitar, but he doesn't do anything stylish with it. He just walks out. Yeah. He needs to, like, pose on the stage and time his walk to the music transitioning. Yeah, yeah. Madden talks about Flair holding Douglas down and never giving him a shot for seven years, but again, Douglas spent most of that time in other companies, so how was Flair going to give him a shot? Exactly. Douglas grabs a microphone. So they have the option to get a chance? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like they had the option before they entered the building. <laughs> That's like entry, entering the building is drinking the option. Yeah, this one was a bit of a word salad. It worked well enough on the crowd, but the earlier promo was much better. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird to give them a second promo, especially when it's not as good. Yeah, yeah. 
Flair comes out in basic black street clothes. That is always so sad to see. Yeah. Flair should never, ever come out without a rope. Ever. Mm-hmm. I don't care if he's going for a stroll. Yes. It's weird to see him, the guy defending tradition in street clothes, yeah. while Douglas, the guy attacking tradition, is in formal pro wrestling gear. Yeah. It's fairly nice gear, too. The same colors, in fact, as the Western Union logo. Pay us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Flair gets a microphone, and Robinson holds the ropes for him. You know the deal, brother. When the world champion walks down the aisle, the referee always lifts the rope, boy. You're not the world champion. You wouldn't know anything about that. But in this town, where guys like handsome Holly Race, and the nation of Rick Flair have worked hard to preserve the great sport of professional wrestling, a dip like you've got nothing to say about it, buddy. Yikes! Woo! It was a Tonight, brother, it's just like 1981. I'm going to style a profile. I'm going to walk the aisle. And I'm going to kick your ECW pal. thought this was a, a short but fairly effective flair promo. Gets across his distaste for Douglas and offense at Douglas's disrespect for him and other legends. He gets a lot done in a matter of moments. Yeah. It has a little touch of that, um, what we actually talked about in the Ready to Rumble movie. Mm. Flair's kind of an 80s character. Yeah. And they're trying to make him more 90s by having him swear. Yeah, it's true. It's like, it doesn't come off completely outside the pale for him, but it just feels a little bit strange. No, I can never see that, yeah. It's, it's also interesting that Charles Robinson gets to be the referee for this match. <laughs> yes. Given him Considering last, last year, yeah. Yes. Tony brings up Flair winning his first world title from Dusty Rhodes in this very city in 1981. Flair struts. Douglas reverses Flair's early holds and lands strikes, taunting the crowd, but Flair wins a chop fest with an eye rake and a snapmare, but he goes up top, and karma strikes. Madden actually notes that that never works for Flair, albeit somewhat more angrily than we usually do. Yeah. Douglas abruptly slaps on a figure four leg lock. Flair slumps, giving Douglas a two count. Flair gets the ropes to break. Douglas now starts working the leg. You've got that a bit backwards, man. It's a bit, yeah. Douglas supercells some Flair chops, <laughs> but Flair's leg goes out and he goes down, but counters a second figure four with an eye poke. There's a blatant Flair punch to the balls, but Robinson helpfully remembers that he likes Flair and finds an excuse to look away. Mm-hmm. He, like, I think really just goes to yell at some crowd members or something yeah. like that for no reason. It's funny. Who said that? Oh? Douglas falls outside, and Tony expresses sympathy. Flair beats Douglas up outside, yells at Madden, and runs Douglas into the ring post, but back in, Douglas immediately no-sells, and suplex slams Flair. Nice move, though. Mm-hmm. Douglas gets a chain from his boot, wraps up his fist, and decks Flair, then hides the chain. Two Douglas snap suplexes, and a stalling vertical suplex, quite impressive, for two as he taunts the crowd. They brawl, and Douglas's punches are pretty weak. Yeah. Flair's are not, so he wins that. <laughs> yeah. Watch why he has the chain. He needs that. Clip. Yeah. Flair does some strutting and works the leg, and punts Douglas blatantly in the balls. So fast, I am not sure how he did not legitimately hit him there. Yeah. <laughs> that earns him a lecture and some amused laughter from Tony. <laughs> yeah. Flair goes for the figure four, but struggles unnaturally long putting it on, 
As Buff Bagwell runs down the ramp, and a guy in a sting mask appears on the apron and clubs Flair with a baseball bat, knocking him out. Clearly, he was a tad late. That's why Flair had to struggle that long. Yeah, right. The commentators theorize that it might be Russo. With Flair unconscious, Douglas rolls him up for the three count and the win. Douglas lands punches on Flair as Bagwell gets in the ring and grabs Flair's legs, directing Douglas to do a chain of fist. <laughs> chain of fisted? <laughs> <laughs> That's what it should have been called, I guess. Yeah. Directing Douglas to do a chain assisted fist drop to Flair's balls. Sting mask guy just kind of stands there watching and finally gives Bagwell a high five. Douglas, Bagwell, and Sting mask guy start to leave, but Flair recovers and grabs a microphone, challenging Russo. Russo, 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 Russo. He says it many times. Russo? He says Russo's going nowhere and owes him five minutes. I guess there was a step where... Yes, they mentioned in the promo in the video package, if he interfered, you get a five minute in the ring with Ah, uh, okay. Russo. If Russo interferes, then he gets yeah. five minutes. Okay, I get it. Sting mask guy is confident when we cut back, but somehow Lex Luger has managed to knock out Douglas and Bagwell and sneak up on Sting mask guy. How did that happen? He had to hear Luger selling all his own attacks. Yeah. <laughs> Luger grabs the bat and escorts the masked man to the ring, threatening to punch him. But Russo suddenly runs down the ramp and takes out Luger off camera. Lots of people getting taken down off camera in this bit. Yeah. Flair is confused to see Russo, and Sting Mask Guy clocks Flair with a miniature Statue of Liberty, of all things, and lands stomps as Russo chokes Flair with the bat. Sting Mask Guy unmask. It's David Flair. Russo calls for the clock to start, and he and David start to beat up Rick, but it's NWO Wolfpack theme count two as Kevin Nash strides down to the ring, takes out David with a single knee strike, which is exactly the amount of effort it should take to beat David Flair. Agreed and tries to powerbomb Russo. He takes an inordinate amount of time getting the positioning just right, which gives Daphne time to punch him in the balls. Yes. Russo hits Nash with the bat, and Russo, David, and Daphne get in some last shots and taunts before departing, leaving the Millionaire's Club laying. In a bit of a nice touch, David's wearing an I Heart New York t-shirt, so Daphne's wearing an I Heart David tank top. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? So, the actual matchup that was... Fairly decent, especially given that we know this is the no-frills Ric Flair, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I thought they had a good tendency to the whole thing. Yes. They definitely trying to force this storyline to be a big thing with the promos and video packages. So it's not truly as organic as they want it to seem like. Mm -hmm. As we mentioned, there's really not a whole seven-year aggravation between these two people. Yeah. It's definitely one-sided up until, like, two weeks ago, basically. It feels like... If you've been watching Shane Douglas in ECW, you might have gotten more of his tension with Ric Flair and tension with tradition yeah. in general. But if you haven't been, they have not done a sufficient amount to expose that to the actual WCW yeah. audience. He likes to name drop Ric Flair in a negative way in like ECW promos and like shoot videos and stuff like that. But yeah, it's not really a thing that happened organically in right. the story. His wrestling aspect was good. I thought his suplex were really well mm, done. Yeah. His song's good. Flair, since he's not really being the real work Flair at this point, is at least committed to the whole grittier sort of street fight idea. Obviously, we both agree that they shouldn't have the only street fight Rick Flair, because that's dumb. Yes. Even 2021, when he's selling car insurance, he wears the robe. <laughs> yes. 
Car Shield pays enough money to wear the robe, but <laughs> apparently WCW does not at this point. The other thing about the story we think about is a little weird. So there's supposed to be like a big 70-year grudge match between these two people, but it's also mostly about Vince Russo. Mm-hmm. So which is it? Which is the important story? The Vince Russo wants to destroy Ric Flair thing, or the Shane Douglas as always hated Ric Flair, and I guess Ric Flair just very recently said he doesn't like Shane Douglas. Yeah, it, it goes back again to it's all Douglas's side of yeah. the feud. Like, you need something for Ric Flair to care about. He doesn't care about Shane Douglas, so that's why you intermix the Russo stuff that yeah. Flair actually has a reason to care about. Yeah. If this is done right, Flair should be so mad he doesn't care about Rich Russo, he doesn't right. need the extra stipulation. Yeah, you you shouldn't need that. You should be able to pull in the bit, like you said earlier, about the NWA title being thrown down, Ric Flair yeah. being mad about Douglas's disrespect for tradition, but they just haven't done it that way for some yeah. reason. It's also worth noting that the watch around Ventrezo and then Larry David Flair's neck is actually Ric Flair's watch. Oh, okay. They, they beat him up and took his Rolex, so he's wearing it as like a trophy. Oh, I think one of the one of the commentary team does mention that at some point yeah. during that end. But it should be a bigger plot point. It should be, yeah. yeah. Or at least Ric Flair should call the police for stolen property. Yeah, that should happen with a lot of wrestling angles. It's true. It's not going to exist story for sure. Yeah. I will give him credit for at least committing to the whole trying to trick you who's has a Russo is thing because mm-hmm. they had to flare wear and wear the same shirt. Yeah. He uses that as part of his disguise. Right. Yeah. So Rick wants the time to start because of the interference, but obviously it's not actually Russo, but then Russo calls for the timer for like 20 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Technically, technically Russo should be like, just no, you don't get five minutes because I didn't interfere. Yeah. Like that should be the trick, right? Yeah, Exactly. But instead, he's like, no, we get five minutes still. And then they just, you know, leave before the five minutes are Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of things that could work here, but they just are not put together well, I would yeah. say, as a whole. Yeah, I thought this was a perfectly acceptable little match, but it definitely felt like it was on fast forward to me. Mm-hmm. It races through some of the standard Flair moments and doesn't take much time to build its story. Though notably, Flair at least does spend some time working the leg before going for the figure four. True. Douglas does not. No, he does not. <laughs> Some parts just don't quite hold up. In particular, Douglas just suddenly ignoring everything that happened outside the ring to suddenly be totally fine once they're back in. Sure, yeah. And the ending feels a bit mistimed, but this still had some decent moments to it, and that triple suplex from Douglas was great. Yeah. So, acceptable, but this probably could have been quite good with some more time and a little more planning. Yeah. I feel like these two, even at this time, have a very good match in them. Yeah. This just isn't quite it. No, for sure. So one thing that's not really mentioned too much on commentary, so on the Thunder we mentioned before with the Battle Royale, it's from this weird New York Rules show, where basically there's no refs, and wrestlers just sort of count their own pinfalls or have their buddies count pinfalls. As part of that, there's a match where Chronic counts their own pinfall on the tag champions, which are Shane Douglas and Buff Bagwell, which you think would come up. Mm Mm-hmm. And they leave with the tag belts. This is why Douglas and Bagwell don't have the tag belts. Okay. So there's this question of who's actually tag champions. Thankfully, that would be decided on the Nitro after the following one, so eight days from this show. Okay. They have an actual title match where Chronic win the belts. Naturally, in two weeks, they would then drop them to Sean Stacey, Agatech, Palumbo. <laughs> Naturally. As for Flair, they would do an angle on the following Nitro where he tried to, like, emotionally break kayfabe by referring himself by his actual last name, uh, Fleur basically pronounced it not as a flair. It's pretty close, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not as much of a difference as, like, Terry Bollea and Hulk Hogan, right? right. 
But yeah, so he, you know, he's trying to make like an emotional plea for his son to come back, his son pretends to, and of course, doesn't really, and hits him with the same stupid prop again. And so Flair leaves like he's not going to come back, but as we'll cover later, he definitely does come back. And this is all built up to Great American Bash having a match between the two Flairs fighting each other. Ugh, not sure if Ric Flair even can accomplish something good with that one. Yeah, it's the best shot maybe at David Flair match, but yeah, yeah. I'll talk with that. Tony and Hudson are aghast that David Flair turned against Rick. Tony builds up the upcoming Sting and Vampiro match, describing their feud as a, quote, vision of red. Vision of red. He throws to a video package. I am going to show you what it's like to walk around with your humanity stripped, just like I have. Sting, welcome to my nightmare. And out of the darkness, Sting repels. Right now, I feel like rumping, stumping, graveyard destruction. You think I don't know anything about pain? Vampiro, did you see that? I don't know what he's doing. Oh, my God. Sting is helpless. And Vampiro likes you're entering my world, and I am sick, and I am twisted, and I'm a little freaky, like the spider set to the fly. Coming to my web, boy. The hunter has become the hunted. I'm your anti-hero, Sting. I have decided your destiny has sealed your fate, because I am a monster that you should have been. The package highlights their prior matches, including the night that Vampiro drags Sting through the ring, the night Vampiro drenched Sting in red, Yes, which is clearly supposed to be blood, but they evidently can't say it. Apparently not. <laughs> and the night that they fought in a graveyard. I'm sure this feud has not been nearly as awesome as this package makes it look like it has been, which means it's a pretty darn good video package, actually. Yeah, true. It even makes it look like Vampiro has an actual personality. <laughs> Yeah, it's decent. It's definitely very busy, but it mostly works. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it has the same problem on a lot of a lot of the packages tonight, where it's like clip, 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 jumping through yeah. the events. But at least they're focusing on something that just has kind of a fairly straightforward story. Right. This match, then this match, then this match. So you kind of get a coverage of it. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so our eighth match is Vampiro versus Sting. Referee for this one is Mickey J. So the basic idea is that Vampira came in, and initially they're pushing him as a face. It's interesting. Hogan, at one point in a promo, one of the Spring Break shows, refers to him as the future of the industry, which is kind of surprising. Not necessarily wrong, but it's it's weird to see Hogan, of all people, say that. Yeah. So they start pushing the idea that Sting likes him, and they're going to be brothers in paint. Because they both wear face paint. Yes, exactly. Other than that, they don't have a lot in common, really, besides that. I yeah. guess that's enough. I guess uh, they both wear black, too. Yeah. Though, judging by this show, that's like everybody. Fair point. Fair point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Other than the prints, I guess. When even Ric Flair is coming out in just basic black, uh, you may have a theme going on yeah, here. Just a bit, yeah. Naturally, as you see, pretty apparent, Vampiro, of course, betrays Sting, and then this led to this feud. Sting betrayal number 9,764. At least, yes. Yeah. <laughs> At least. Vampiro gets some cool lighting and a song that I'm sure must be a sound alike for something, but I can't place it. Yeah. Maybe a Pearl Jam thing, is it? It's very possible. Yeah, yeah it sounds like a Pearl Jam thing, maybe. Maybe, yeah, probably. He brings a lead pipe with him and sets it at ringside. Sting gets a truly awesome strobe-lit entrance, complete with a crow, just to make sure that WCW gets sued. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> he brings a bat with him and challenges Vampiro to come on. Vampiro, unwisely, charges the man wielding a baseball bat before Sting even gets to the ring. So Sting beats him up and suplexes him on the ramp. Vampiro gets the glittery confetti on his back. Yes, it's still there, seven matches later. Yep. <laughs> Sting gives a stinger call and sends Vampiro into the ring, then hits a top rope missile drop kick. Beautiful. Vampiro flees outside, so Sting dives off the top rope onto him, then brings him to the commentary table, where Tony actually encourages him to use the table. <laughs> yeah. Sting instead DDTs Vampiro on the outside mats. Back in, Vampiro slugs Sting in the balls to take over, and Madden claims you can't kill a vampire, they just go to sleep. I think Abraham von Helsing and the Belmont family might debate that slightly. Yeah, a bit. <laughs> Vampiro gets his pipe and clubs Sting a bunch, which is apparently fine. What are the rules tonight? What do they feel like? Nice roundhouse kick, and Sting crawls to the entrance ramp as Vampiro discards the pipe and follows. Single-hand bulldog and a nice spin kick by Vampiro, and Madden insists that nobody kicks harder. Somewhere, Glacier would cry, but his tears are frozen. That's a shame. Back in the ring, Vampiro hits Sting with the pipe again and puts him up top, but Sting punches him in the balls and power bombs him down. Sting hits Vampiro with his own lead pipe, Stinger splashes him, then Stinger splashes him with the lead pipe, though he pretty much misses Vampiro with the pipe. Oh yeah, 100%. Oh well. They get entirely muddled on Sting's scorpion death drop, setting up the wrong way at first. It's weird, yeah. Sting finally hits it, then picks Vampiro up and does it again, smoother, for the three count in the win. You would think Vampiro must have taken Sting's finisher at some yeah. point over the course of this feud, right? Yeah, Sting needs to do a second one so they can put the right one in the video packet yeah, probably yeah. the next show of it. This war is far from over because neither man will let himself be defeated ever, Madden insists, right after Sting defeated Vampiro. <laughs> yes, true. <laughs> Sting celebrates and starts to leave, but sees Vampiro getting back up on the big screen over the entrance, so he goes back and knocks Vampiro out with the lead pipe, then leaves with strobe lights and thunder sounds. Well, that was an epic exit. <laughs> yeah. Thoughts on this one? I thought it was a pretty good match. I thought it had a good energy, especially in Sting's part. Sting really seemed up for this whole thing. Mm -hmm. I feel like he really wants to elevate Vampiro by working with him. The only problem with this match is that it's basically three parts. Mm -hmm. Sting comes out, beats up Vampiro nonstop. Then Vampiro basically cheats. You know, it's not suddenly illegal, but it's clearly cheating. Yeah. Then 100% controls the match nonstop until suddenly Sting counters and controls the match nonstop and wins. Yes, yeah. It's a kind of lazily structured match, especially on a show where we have all these interesting counters and trade off moves in matches like the Canyon Awesome match. Mm -hmm. It's just a weirdly one sided back and forth like this. I do agree. I think the action was quite good, save for that surprisingly sloppy ending. But. <sighs> It feels almost like a squash match to me. It's like if, if Sting's goal is to build up Vampiro, it feels a little bit strange because 90% of Vampiro's offense is strikes with a lead pipe. He's almost completely unable to get in any blows without the aid of a weapon, and that's not really a way to look like a great fighter. Yeah. Sting dominates early on with ease, turns things around with ease, and just decimates Vampiro to close things out. Yeah. So it was fun, but it... Felt more like Sting versus a low-ranking member of a heel group, like yeah. a, the henchman on his way to the big boss, mm -hmm. not Sting versus his nemesis yeah. as part of an epic feud. 
but they did both seem into it, yeah. so it was quite enjoyable still. No, I had the same note, too. Yeah, it's, it's weird, because he seems like he wants to elevate Vampiro by working with them, but then, yeah, the match is laid out where Vampiro has to use the pipe to get any advantage. Yeah. And once he stops using the pipe, he loses the advantage. Yeah, and, it, like, again, this is one where maybe if you did it as a bit of a longer match, you could have it as Vampiro used the lead pipe to take advantage, but then has quite a bit more offense yeah. that doesn't involve it. He can control it, yeah, yeah. But I think it's just like, this is a very short match, and maybe they just haven't been able to work out, okay, what do we do in an actual ring against each other we previously fought in a graveyard? Yeah. So there's something weird with the structure of this one. Agreed, yes. But at least the action is still fun. Yeah, I, I can see that, yeah. And Vampiro's kicks are awesome. I, w- I will give him that, yeah, yeah. definitely. So uh, the following Nitro, Vampiro do a sit-down interview with Mike Tanay. And he revealed that apparently he kidnapped one of Sting's crows. And he talks about how he's a big fan of rock and roll, and you know, he got introduced Sting to, to rock and roll, which is funny on own because his name is Sting. Yes. And he basically threatens to do what uh, Ozzy Osbourne did to a bat, to a crow, which thankfully is interrupted by Sting, who beats him up some more. But yes, this is all leading up to the next show, where they have the Human Torch match. Oh, God. Yes. That one. Where you can only win the match by lighting the person on fire. Jeez. Escalated quickly from singles match to burn you alive. But hey. Yeah, it's a weird flow to the feud, isn't it? You've got, you like, drag each other out of the ring, then dump blood on each other. Yeah. Then fight in a graveyard. Then have a singles match. Yeah. And then burn each other alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, one of these things is not like the other. A bit, Yeah. <laughs> Backstage, Mike Tenay is doing the interviews now. What, did Mean Gene go to take a coffee break? He's been busy tonight. He's got Maybe he's getting uh, questioned by Russo about his outfit. Very, there you go, yeah. <laughs> Tenay is with DDP and some kind of flame-powered superhero cosplayer. Oh, wait, that's David Arquette in the most ridiculous outfit they could possibly have found for him to wear. <laughs> it's like this red bodysuit with suspenders with red lightning on them yeah. and a big red cape. It's all the pieces like left over from when they make Harlem Heat outfits. Yeah. That's one outfit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Arquette looks frightened. And joining me at this time, two of the three men who tonight at Slamboree will enter the three-level cage and vie for the WCW World's Heavyweight Championship belt, Diamond Dallas Page and David Arquette. And David, realistically, this could be the end of your acting career, putting it at stake tonight here at Slamboree. Yeah. Yeah, Mike, I'm really scared. I mean, I know I look good, but I'm scared. But we're just going to stick to the plan, right, Page? Just stick to the plan. Like I told you, you do what I tell you to do, you're going to be fine. The way it goes down, it goes down like this. You stay out of Jared's way. That's all That's all you got to worry about. You stay out of his way. But if any of those other guys get involved, you know I want you to go straight to the top and you fend them off. You got it? And you take care of things. Hey, when you get up there, though, you don't grab the belt. You got it, monkey? Yeah, I yeah. I know you don't want it. I know you don't want it. I know you don't Maybe find a way to quiet down Sting's music so we can actually hear the promos a little bit more. That'd be nice, yeah. <laughs> but, of course, DDP has a plan. Yeah. I'm surprised that they weren't carrying binders. Yes. This is, again, actually a pretty effective segment, except for being partially unable to hear it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Arquette nicely sells the fear of an unprepared person forced into a fight. 
And DDP carries forward the story from Arquette's earlier promo by being reassuring, but maybe a tad condescending. I bet, yeah. Look, the Arquette as champion storyline is a dumb idea, but these two are really doing their best with it, and I appreciate that. Yeah, I can see that, sure. Feels like they're really pushing through this dissension, uh, subtle ascension at least, mm-hmm. uh, on this show. Didn't really get that in the build-up to it. That's the thing that feels a little weird about it. Yeah. There's one bit in the video package early on in it where Arquette says, like, I I don't deserve the title or something like that. And it sounds like DDP says something like, I know, mm-hmm. which I think is more intended to be like, I know I know how you feel. Right. could be taken as, yeah. I know you don't actually deserve the title. Right. So I feel like there's maybe like little tiny moments before mm-hmm. the show, but this show, it feels like they're really, they've decided that's the route they're going with it. Yeah, oh, but nice to slow walk into that. Yeah, make it more organic. Yeah, feels like maybe they've realized this is not a great angle coming into the show, but they've decided, okay, here's what we can do: we can do something with this mm-hmm. and and make it work. <laughs> Elsewhere, Kevin Nash stalks the halls, checking doorways and searching for Vince Russo. But we cut away to take a look at what Tony calls a capacity crowd. It is very much not. <laughs> yeah. We go back to Mike Tanay, and he's now with Kidman, Bischoff, and Tori Wilson. Billy Kidman, in just a few moments, you will be facing the biggest challenge of your career when you meet the immortal Hulk Hogan with this man, Eric Bischoff, the special referee. Tanay, I am begging you, stop kissing his ass. I've already proved that Hogan is anything but immortal. As far as being my toughest challenge, I beat the guy three times already. With Eric Bischoff and the pinstripes over there, I can't lose. Can't lose. I look good in stripes, don't I? Mm-hmm. Make no mistake about it. We're going to call this one right down the middle, right down the middle of Hulk Hogan's yellow back. Billy Kidman, it's going to be a great night for you, and it's going to be a great night for new blood. <laughs> Decent little promo here, but nothing particularly exceptional. I do like Kidman's response to, this will be your greatest challenge. Like, I've already beaten the guy. Right. I've yeah. actually beaten the guy several times. <laughs> that is really the question of why this match is so important then. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a little bit of a a weird angle overall. Like if he's already beaten him, why does he need to beat him again? Yeah. And I get that Bischoff's there to make super ultra mega sure that he beats mm-hmm. him, but still, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a strange storyline. Yeah, for for sure. <laughs> I'll give him credit for trying with his character and trying to make it work, though. He seemed committed to it. I think this gets at something that I think we will touch at more effectively after the match. But it feels like this feud is perhaps backwards. Mm. The alignments in this feud are backwards. Oh, okay. And I think Kidman is doing his best in this bit to be as bratty as he possibly can to try to oppose that a little bit. Oh, okay, yeah. It it kind of works. It kind of works. From there, Tony reads out an ad. Apparently, if we sent a bill in indicating that we purchased Slamboree, we could get a free Buff Bagwell pennant. Thank goodness I didn't order this on cable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. The Slamboree logo on the screen is appended with the Western Union money transfer logo because please pay us, we need the money, oh please, please, please. Yes. <laughs> so our ninth match is Billy Kidman with Tori Wilson versus Hulk Hogan with Horace Hogan and F-U-N-B best <laughs> with a special guest referee of Easy e Eric Bischoff, accompanied by Kimberly Page. So before the actual storm begins, Hogan would do a radio interview talking about the company, and referred to bunch of wrestlers as not being stars, and saying they couldn't headline a flea market. But Vampiro, future of the company. Absolutely, yeah. But yeah, so that was not part of an actual story, that was just something he said, because it's Hulk Hogan. 
So they took that as part of the storyline and ran with it. That's why they reference uh, Kim as he becomes a flea market champ. Flea market champion. Yeah, exactly. Kind of turn into into a positive. So yeah, as part of the reset thing, Bischoff turns on Hogan, having tired of basically doing all the work for him and making him the star. In his words, anyways. Yeah, it leads to a series of matches where Kidman's his new favorite. He's unlike Hogan anymore. So there's a lot of times where they'll challenge Hogan to match it. And technically they beat him, but they'll beat him in really non-decisive fashion. Mm-hmm. The big win is a handicap match of Mike Awesome and Billy Kidman against Hogan, where Mike Awesome powerbombs Hogan and then Kidman pins him. Right. To show how great he is, I guess. <laughs> and of course... <laughs> This pinfall would still be counted by Hogan as of even a few years ago about, you know, examples of how he, quote, puts people over. <laughs> so this is important for him, at least, even if it's not important to everybody else. It's also worth mentioning as part of the angle, they would hit Hogan's car with the white Hummer, bringing that back. <laughs> Albeit for no reason other than just because they had the prop flying, basically. <laughs> at least that proves that wasn't the one that got broken up in the Ready to Rumble movie. That's true. Yeah. Bischoff is out, accompanied by Kimberly Page, who wears a legitimately cool-looking purple trench coat. Yeah. The commentators try to ruin it by describing her as sultry. I'm not sure I've ever seen a guest referee have a valet or manager before. That's rather new. Yeah, it's true. Tony mentions that Kimberly has served DDP with divorce papers. Kidman and Wilson are out next, and Kidman mocks Hogan's hand to the ear pose, as Tony and Madden discuss Hogan insulting Kidman by saying he couldn't headline a wrestling show in a flea market, but Kidman then beating Hogan. So which one's the bad guy here again? Kidman? Hogan comes out with Horace Hogan, and they turn around to show their F-U-N-B vests, which stands for F*** you, new blood. Because if Ready to Rumble proved anything, it's that it's awesome when 80s wrestlers start swearing to seem 90s. So actually, if you ask Tony Giovanni, he stands for forget you, new blood. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, he tries that, and is like, just no. <laughs> Bischoff kicks Horace out, and Hulk agrees to let him leave with a fist bump. Horace Hogan, ladies and gents. In that payday. Hogan chases Kidman around the outside of the ring, and Kidman ducks back in and ambushes him with kicks and punches. Madden accidentally calls Tony Mike. <laughs> Oops. Kidman dodges around, but Hogan grabs him, but strangely has trouble lifting him for a slam, and Kidman rolls him up for two. Was that really the planned spot? It doesn't feel like Hogan should have any trouble body slamming Kidman. Especially we see later in the match, but it doesn't seem like a problem at all. Yeah. Yeah. Hudson blames it on a bum knee. Mm. So I don't know, maybe that was an actual planned spot, or maybe they just didn't have their timing right. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's definitely a law, for sure. Yeah. Kidman tries a crucifix pin and turns it into a sunset flip, but Hogan just picks him up and crotches him on the ropes, then clotheslines him out of the ring. Hogan brings him back in, along with a chair, but Bischoff orders him not to hit Kidman, so he sets up the chair and drops Kidman on it instead. Ribs first. Ow. Yeah. That did not look very fun. Now, why doesn't Bischoff just disqualify him now? Because the rules are loosened, even if you're a heel referee. But he can clear the qualification only once, can't he? Yes. Yes, he can. Okay, just take it sure. Yeah. Okay. It makes very little sense yeah. in this match, yeah. Bischoff disposes of the chair. Kidman counters a charge with a Hurricane Rana and dropkick, and Hogan goes outside, but drags Kidman out to beat him up. Kidman uses Tori as a human shield, and Sucker punches Hogan, then lands more punches in the ring, but Hogan clotheslines him down, takes off his weight belt, and whips Kidman. Bischoff justifiably takes the belt away, and less justifiably hands the belt to Kidman, who gets revenge. 
They muck up a flip spot. Hogan flings Kidman out of the ring, beats him up, and brings him back in for a pin, but Bischoff ignores it, as well as another off a back suplex. Bischoff claims he didn't see it. Of course. Kidman dodges elbow drops, and Tony points out that Hogan is slower to get up each time, until Kidman beats him to his feet and attacks. Hogan chucks him outside, and they brawl. Kidman snaps his neck against the ropes getting back in, but Hogan hulks up. Punch, punch. Whip. Big boot. But Bischoff gets in the way, so Hogan decks him and hits the big leg drop on Kidman. Bischoff grabs a chair, but Hogan kicks him, grabs the chair, and nails him and Kidman. Hogan goes out to get the tables, and one breaks before he even sets it up. Yeah, like the the base of the one leg just sort of breaks as he's putting it just down. Like, goes sideways. Yeah, it just snaps Like, off. well, tossing that one to the side. <laughs> so, of course, he leaves it in the ring. Yeah. Hogan tries to powerbomb Bischoff through a table, to clarify, the better table. Yes. <laughs> but Kidman saves with a chair for two. Eventually, as Bischoff first has to regain consciousness. Yes. Hogan is bloody. I think the chair actually cut him. It doesn't look like the normal sort of from the forehead. It looks like from the back. Oh, no, I could I could see him blatantly. Oh, you do? Oh, okay. yeah. It's very, he's very bad at covering after oh, okay. 20 years. I think he's better at that. <laughs> Bischoff holds Hogan for a Kidman chair shot, but Hogan boots the chair into Kidman's face, kicks Bischoff in the crotch, and power bombs Bischoff through the good table. Hogan gets a third table, fights the ropes getting into the ring, and gets a chair. But Kidman punches him in the crotch, hits him with the chair, sets him on the new table, and goes up top. Hogan dodges a splash, and Kidman goes through the table. So Hogan goes for the pin, and Horace Hogan runs down and forces Bischoff's hand to count three, which apparently counts. I guess because he has to count it and his hand hit the mat? Hulk Hogan wins. A bloody Hogan poses alongside Horace. Enjoy your pay-per-view payday for very little work, Horace. Right. Thoughts on this one? It's a big, busy match, which, despite me not liking it, apparently the crowd there seems to really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. The crowd pops for every big moment when he's throwing Kidman around, so to get one of those cases, like some of these hyper matches were, I don't like him, but apparently it worked for the live crowd, so I can't take too many points off for I suppose. Mm-hmm. The Hogan's in all black, wearing his FUNB jacket. Again, there's taking the frills and interesting things away from characters. Much like with Flair, Hogan should just, like, not be in an outfit like yeah, this. exactly. It's weird, because he, he wears the vest the whole time. Like, he, mm-hmm. I get for the entrance why he wears the whole match, though. Yeah. It's like he should be in mostly his Hollywood gear or something like that, yeah. if he wants that look. He but has then, black outfits. But then just take <laughs> off the, the vest to do the actual match, yeah. The only reason that Dickie keeps the vest on is, so when they do the take the weight belt and whip him a bit. If you notice, Hogan's always whipped on the back where he's got the vest on. So maybe that's what it oh, okay. is. That's the other thing. So his weight belt is always a legal weapon, even before the new WCW and their lax rules. So it's kind of funny that they like, make a point of like, well, he can use it now because of the rules. Like, no, nah, it's, it's, it's like forever. Yeah, yeah. That's always been the thing. The thing with this match is that Kidman, for the most part, really is shown and booked to not hang with Hogan which should not be the way this works. Like with Vampiro, you should be able to take advantage of some sort of cheating, whether it's Bischoff doing it or he's a weapon shot, but then maintain control. And he really can't do right. that for more than 20 seconds at a time, maybe. Yeah, I would agree with that. So they get a big, big show of him doing the Hurricane Mario to Hogan. You're like, who's our dad to Hogan? I'm like, it doesn't really matter. 20 seconds later, it's, he's being thrown on again, like nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's supposed to build him up, but it's really not. In fact, the only real competitor that's tempted to Hogan is basically all the tables. 
<laughs> yes. I don't know how he breaks that table. He's like trying to set it, and the one, like the base connecting the leg just snaps off as he lifts it. It really doesn't seem to be anything he does. It's just like the table is, it's just a bad table. Maybe, yeah. Unless he clips it, pulling it in or something. I don't know. How he to... just like picks it up and then starts to set it down, and the leg just like breaks off. Yeah. Bizarre. And he, he's so used to table, he just sort of leaves it sitting across the ropes the whole time. Yeah. And poor Kidman's got to do the, the where he dives the table, but he barely hits that thing, too, because he's got, like, That's... his, like, hips and thighs kind of hit it grazing, and he falls over. <laughs> it's funny that Hogan, I get that they cover up the him doing the leg drop bit, but it's weird that he just doesn't even do a move after Kidman misses the splash. He's like, oh, he's down, I'll just pin him. Yeah. I mean, admittedly, he went through a table, so fair enough, but... Yeah, but you you think you'd do something else, because you're the face, but, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. This one was somewhat botchy with a few spots missed. I think it's that Hogan just isn't used to working with a guy like Kidman and doing those sorts of spots. Sure. Based around, like, flips and such. Yeah. So he gets a bit muddled in the moment a few times. Mm -hmm. But they do recover really quickly each time, so while it hurts, it never really breaks the flow of the match. Yeah, sure. Otherwise, I actually did feel this was a neat match to see, with Hogan fighting someone completely different from his normal sort of opponent. Yeah. And they put together an interesting fight, albeit one with maybe more props than were strictly necessary. <laughs> we get the chair, a weight belt, and not one, not two, but three tables. Okay, admittedly, the last one is just because one of them breaks, but still. Yeah. But this kept moving well, and it felt hard fought if, like you said, maybe too much in Hogan's yeah. favor. It was still interesting to see, but this is where I gotta say, it felt backwards. Uh-huh. Kidman just doesn't do quite enough smarmy jerk stuff to avoid garnering sympathy as the smaller guy. Yeah. So it feels like you should be rooting for Kidman, although the latter half of the match where Bischoff just blatantly cheats on his behalf does help with that. Right. But reverse the alignments in this match, and you'd actually have a dang good concept if you had heel Hogan like Hollywood-era Hogan yeah. doing this sort of match against face Kidman then it'd be one of the best Hollywood Hogan matches, I think. Right. And actually, in that case, a star-making performance for Kidman. Sure. But with him as the bad guy, the one you want to see beaten, like you said with the Sting and Vampiro match, it like feels like you want the good guy to win. Yeah. So you just don't give the bad guy enough of a star-making turn. Right. But still, as it is, this was still fun. It just felt awkward at times. Yeah. It's definitely a mess to watch, but this kind of a weird beauty to it. Because mm-hmm. Hogan in this weird outfit doesn't know ever wear, like, before or after this. And all these tables and chairs and everything. It's, it's unique. I'll give it that. Yeah. It's worth seeing for the novelty of it. Yeah. With more work on it and a different kind of setup, yeah. this exact match could have been absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. It doesn't reach that level, but it's definitely, like, worth the time for someone to look at yeah. just to see a completely different Hulk Hogan match. Yeah, the whole Hogan-Kidman feud is really forgotten about, I think, for a lot of people. Maybe because it's on a show like this, and because it's in late WCW. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. Yeah. As you can imagine, this is not the end of the story. They'd have another match at the Great American Bash. This time, they would tweak the setup a bit. There'd still be a guest referee, but it'd be Horace Hogan. Now, it sounds like they're flipping things around, but actually, in the build-up to this, Horace joins the New Blood. <gasps> Guess. I know. But he wore an F-U-N-B vest and everything. Maybe it's fan under the new blood? <laughs> He's about something else? <laughs> Forever you, new blood. There we go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Acronyms can work many ways. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah, so if you like this match, hopefully we get a more polished and less uh, awkward version the next month of American Bash. <laughs> we'll see. Out in the parking lot, a terrified Vince Russo drags Elizabeth to a bus, opens the door, and reacts with surprise to see Luger in the driver's seat. He pushes Elizabeth inside, steals a car, and leaves. The commentators tell us that that's the Millionaire's Club's bus. I guess since Luger's the driver, it's the old Lex Express. Yeah. <laughs> so he's surprised to see Lex inside the bus that he presumably owns? Yes. Okay, just checking. <laughs> As Russo drives off, Kevin Nash strolls out of the arena and stares after him, then sips a beer. Wait, so he took some time during his urgent, angry search of the backstage to snag a beer? Yeah. Admittedly, that sounds very Kevin Nash. It does feel very <laughs> Kevin Nash, yeah. But quite cold. Yes. The mindset and the beer, hopefully. Hopefully, yes. And Luger, he was so worried about Elizabeth, he just went to chill out in his bus. Yeah. <laughs> Presumably, he's actually their bus driver? <laughs> yeah, let's see that. I can picture Luger sitting up front of the bus, making a lot of noise, turns around, Hey, kids, cool it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> We cut back to the ring and see that the Hogans are still celebrating as people work on cleaning up the ring. Cut to a video package building up the main event. Oh boy. The master plan worked! And Kimberly, she's new blood! She's new blood! She's standing in the back for George Bishop, Jarrett, and the new blood. I am the chosen one. I made you page and I can break you. Whatever. So, yes, many things occurred. Yes. I'll let Al go over all this madness when we hit the match itself in a bit. But the video does at least do a fair job of showing the sequence of events, just without much explanation. And these events definitely need some explanation. Yeah. Throw in a quick ad for the Great American Bash. No barbecues this time, sadly. Just a splash screen and Tony reading some basic info. And we cut to Gene Okerlund, who is with Jeff Jarrett. Aha. Good to see Gene's back from his coffee break. That was good. Chosen one, Jeff Jarrett, you're going to be involved in a match tonight where you could walk out being the two-time, two-time WCW World Heavyweight Champion. However, that match is going to take place in a triple cage, the ready-to-rumble triple cage. You're going to be facing two other men, literally, Diamond Dallas Page and David Arquette. It could be a handicap match. 
Oh, so I guess you think you got it all figured out, don't you? Well, guess what? You're still just a geriatric slap ass. Slap ass. Now, as far as the cage goes, I can't wait to embarrass GDP and that 150-pound turd David Arquette because I'm going to get my title back. And tonight, we're going to play a little game of boots and ladders. And when it's all said and done, they're going to be flossing with my shoelaces. Why don't you choke on that, Okerlund? Bit of a weird opening by Jarrett here, using the same insult twice for some reason. Yeah. But he does have a good defiant tone in this, and I actually love the boots and ladders line. Yeah, that's not bad. <laughs> it's short, but it does largely work, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's not bad. He didn't do his weird little laugh in there, so that's all good. Yeah. He he seems to have replaced the ha-has with um, slap nuts and slap various things. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure that's better, really, yeah. but it's different. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> So our final match is Diamond Dallas Page versus David Arquette versus the chosen one, Jeff Jarrett, in a ready-to-rumble triple cage match of doom for <sighs> David Arquette's WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Oh, my gosh. The referee for this one is Billy Silverman. David Arquette started appearing on WCW television to promote Rated Rumble, specifically the video release of it. This show was actually promoting like the home video release, not even the theatrical release, which is oh, kind okay. of strange. Because it, it came out very quickly in theaters. Yeah. I think maybe they thought it would last longer, but it did not. <laughs> so yeah, now it's more the video release for this. Naturally, he stands up for GDP, the guy who played the bad guy in the movie that he was in. It's a little confusing already. I mean, they were acting. They yeah, to... but it's just, it's just funny. That like, I, I wouldn't have put it past WCW to think that DDP was the bad guy in the film and therefore she'd be the bad guy of the feud, too. But, I mean, at least they're not that disconnected from reality, I guess. Yeah. True. They did bring back Zeus from No Holds Barred. Yes. So they, they've learned, I guess, yes. is the lesson here. <laughs> I guess so. But yeah, so he's never... DP during this whole storyline. Pose reset, the world champion is Jeff Jarrett. He's the chosen one, all that stuff. So naturally, as you hear in the video package, Eric Bischoff decides that if DP wants a title match, David Arquette needs to wrestle a match against himself. So we get a David Arquette versus Eric Bischoff match to determine whether <laughs> DP gets the title match. Okay. Arquette would, of course, win that, leading to a cage match, which I've mentioned in the awesome canyon storyline so during that dp would win the title back that's his third title reign now okay two which as you remember in the last show two which happened very well, quickly like inside a month of each other yeah. yes this is an amazing thing about so and you guys also heard jeff Deere decided that the only way to properly do this would be to book a tag team match with himself and eric bischoff against david arquette and ddp a tag match where the world title is on the line which sadly is not the first time they've done this. They did a pay-per-view once with uh, Kevin Nash and Sid Vicious, among other people in that. So as part of that match, DDP gets hit with the title belt by Jeff Jarrett, but at the same time, Arquette spears Eric Bischoff, and the ref basically has to decide which one he feels like counting. They both go at the same time, he just decides Arquette's one should count. And to be clear, is this a tornado tag? No. So... One of them, presumably, is the actual legal pinfall. Correct. And the other is just blatantly wrong. Yes. Bearing in mind that Arquette is DP's buddy, he then intentionally goes for a pinfall where he can steal DP's world title from Yeah. Him. I wouldn't do that to you, Bob, just for the record. 
I, I'm I'm absolutely sure that you would do that to me. Aw, thanks. <laughs> I'd feel bad about it at least. Okay. Arquette is now the world champion, which leads to the biggest celebrity ever to appear on Nitro, even though it's in a video package. So there's a bit where Derek had visited his then-wife, Courtney Cox. She's showing the movie 3,000 Miles to Graceland. Right. And they're hanging out backstage. He's real happy of being world champion. He's a fan of wrestling. She famously tells, you're not a wrestler. And at one point, Kurt Russell, the star of the movie, walks by. She points out to him that he's the world champion. He laughs derisively and walks off. Doesn't our get, like, grab a chair and chase after him? I, I think something? so, but yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so that is the biggest celebrity to ever promote WCW inadvertently by laughing at their world champion. Man. Yeah, so now our catch world champion, and he won- doesn't want to be world champion, but he's gotten beat up. He actually does have a title defense, by the way. He wins, in giant air quotes, against Tank Abbott, a big uh, Russo star in the making, in a match where, of course, people help him out, and he pins Tank Abbott who incidentally is being built up to a future non-existent match against Goldberg. Not the best way to build him up after no. it was against David Arquette. No. <laughs> Even with notable assistance. Correct. It is on his record as losing to David Arquette. <laughs> One of, like, two people, basically. Three people, maybe. To count that. But yeah, so he wants to get out of being world champion, and he tried to book his own title match. And his own gimmick title match. Yeah, so that. this is a weird thing. It's like, okay, so he's like... I'm going to surrender the belt, which yeah. that I think is something a champ can just decide yeah, to do. Yeah, sure. But he's like, I'm going to surrender the belt. And then he says, by putting it up to DDP and Jeff Jarrett, yes. which is something that world champion cannot choose. Correct. In the triple cage match at Slam Bree, which I'm also sure that the world champion cannot decide that you are going to put on a terrifically expensive gimmick match. Yes. By the way, company, you buy this cage now because I said Yeah. It. Yes. I, I guess presumably he remembered that the cage was around from the movie or something, yeah. so maybe he knew they didn't have to buy it. I assume it's the same cage. But then again, I wouldn't put it past WCW to waste even more money. Yes. Jarrett's like, no, 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 we're not doing that. We're doing exactly that. <laughs> we're doing exactly that, but you're in the match. But you're in the match. Yeah. He's like, who who died and made you commissioner? And then, but we're going to take your idea. Yes. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah. So now we have... Arquette in a title in a cage match to promote a movie video release with Jeff Jarrett and DDP, three-time world champion DDP. Yes, three-time world champion DDP, hopeful two-time world champion Jeff Jarrett. So currently, one-time world champion Jeff Jarrett. So equal ground, equal ground. Yes, one-time world champion exactly. David yeah. Arquette. <laughs> Level playing field. Oh my gosh! Yeah, Jarrett's hoping wins not just to get the title back, but to outdistance David Arquette's title runs. Yes. Yeah, I mean, let's 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 not gloss over this. This is one of the angles that people will sometimes state killed WCW. Yes. I, I don't know that it's that extent. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think it killed WCW on its own anyway. No. There's clearly tons of things going wrong this year, oh, yeah. but this definitely doesn't help. Yeah. If someone was, like, was unsure of the company, it's like, well, let's see what they're doing, and then they see that happen, they're like, nope. Yeah, it's like you you clearly do not respect your world title. Yeah. And I think that's been proven already at various points over the past several years. Yes, and in the future. The finger poke of doom angle. And like I said, in the future, you're going to have bits with like Nash winning the belt and then just handing it to Ric Flair and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is not the only time they demonstrate their complete and total disregard for their own belt. But it is perhaps the most public. Yeah. 
the thing is, this was designed to get them publicity. Mm-hmm. It got them like page five in um, you know the New York Times or something. Yeah, which was apparently, I guess, as best they were going to get from that. <laughs> yes, but the trade off is it got them publicity for people that were maybe hesitant to the product to begin with, old school fans that maybe want to gravitate towards them because they didn't like the Attitude Era. Mm-hmm. And this is what they see in return, and they decide not to stay or not to come back at all. Yeah, if you could have gotten publicity and highlighted how much you were uh, supporting the tradition yeah. and the history of the belt and everything like that, you might have attracted eyes. But instead, you got your name out there associated with something that would make people never want to see you. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's like a failure, at, as demonstrated by the buy rate. Yes. <laughs> Decline. This is a failure at attracting eyes, unfortunately. Michael Buffer does our ring introductions. I wonder if they had to pay him like an extra three-fifths of his usual salary since he had to say ready to rumble twice. Oh. He says it once for the match name and then once for his usual call. That's true. Probably, yeah. The cage lowers from the ceiling with cool lighting and rather generic music. Mm-hmm. I really prefer like the ominous music they'll use sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Something like Luger's theme, maybe. Sure, yeah. Pyro goes off as it gets close and sparkly Pyro fires off from the cage itself. There's a rather nice shot of the big gold belt hanging from the ceiling above the cage. You can't fault them for their portrayal of the cage's scale here. Mm-hmm, yeah. So to describe the cage, much like in the Ready to Rumble film, it's a three-tiered monstrosity. Yes. The first level is a huge cage that covers the ring and the ringside area right up about to the safety barricades. Yeah, I think Kellen himself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The second tier is closer to a normal-sized cage, the ring-hugging kind, yes. and its walls are lined with weapons. And the third is a smaller room, maybe half the normal cage size. Yeah. And his walls are lined with guitars because Jeff Jarrett. Yes. The big gold belt hangs from the arena ceiling, dangling not far above the roof of the third level cage. As enormously company ruining expensive as this must have been, it looks awesome. Yeah. And I would kill for this cage to be in wrestling video games. Yeah. <laughs> I would say it's a little unfair that only Jarrett's weapon of choice gets put in there. Yeah. It should be like, one side has the guitars, one side has, like, diamond-cutting tools. No, one one side has the guitars, and one side has multiple three-ring binders. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I guess the third side has, I don't know, the knife from Scream? Maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah. With a ghost face costume yeah, associated yeah. with it, yeah. Yeah. Might, might as well lose WSW as much money as we can, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Had the, the ref be ghost face. Yeah, there like, you like go. In the corner, but also against Arquette. Yes, yes. But but honestly, like you would love to see this match in oh, video yeah. games, and this like whole match type, honestly, would sure, be sure. Yeah, it's like a wonderfully over expensive, terrible idea in actual reality. Mm-hmm. But in game form, this would be amazing. Oh yeah, same <laughs> with the Triple Cage from Uncensored. I love that. yes, okay. yeah. Jarrett's out first to his crappy chosen one music. Yeah, wearing a shirt with his unfortunate favorite word from this period. Yeah, nice ramp pyro though. Hmm. Buffer calls him the former WCW heavyweight world champion. It's a mouthful. <laughs> in fairness to Buffer, he's doing his reading from outside the cage in the poorly lit area next to the fans, but in less fairness, it's the same title he announces like every time he does this, so he should know what it's called. <laughs> you would think, yeah. Next up is David Arquette, even though he's the world champ. Why not? That outfit is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. I should recognize the song that he's coming out to, but I don't. Mm. Yeah, I don't recall. It feels like one case where they like actually paid for the licensed music instead of putting yeah. 
you know, a sound alike in. Mm-hmm. Speaking of sound alikes, DDP has his Nirvana ripoff. There we go. Cool vest and sign of the diamond cutter. Disappointing Pyro when he does the bang moment, though. Mm-hmm. Arquette bolts as soon as he's in the ring with Jarrett. And Jarrett chases him, but Paige saves. Jarrett kind of awkwardly DDTs Paige and chases Arquette again. But Arquette leads Jarrett past Paige, who clotheslines him. Paige gets his spinning lariat, dodged once, but not twice, by Jarrett. And almost a rock bottom. Yeah. He started doing a move like that a bit. Yeah, it's time. He sends Arquette to do a top rope splash. Arquette actually does a pretty nice top rope splash, but Jarrett dodges and Arquette eats Matt. Yeah. I gotta say, you know, like, 150-pound actor being willing to do that spot. Pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. Jarrett and Paige brawl outside and inside the ring, including Jarrett baseball sliding a ladder into Paige in a neat spot. And Arquette watches on, but gets wiped out by a stray shot more than once. (laughs) Yes. Paige doesn't really react to Arquette's troubles until he does finally check on him before putting a ladder up in the ring. Paige and a bleeding Jarrett trade off trying to climb the ladder and taking each other down. A Jarrett belly-to-back suplex and Paige powerbomb started off, but soon they're dumping the ladder over and Paige even swings from the cage and kicks the ladder over to send Jarrett falling to the part of the entrance ramp that's still inside the cage at one point. Paige finally manages to climb through the hatch to level 2, hardcore hell. There's weapons on the walls of the second cage. Paige cuts the door chain with bolt cutters, but Jarrett follows and attacks. You can nicely actually see Paige very subtly shift the bolt cutters so they fall through to the bottom level so oh. that neither of them will land on them during the upcoming oh, action. Oh, there you go. Nice, nice touch. <laughs> yeah, that's good. They trade shots with trash cans, chairs, and serving trays, which shatter all over the place. A dazed Paige wonderfully swings punches at nobody at one point in a great bit. You learned from Martin Anderson. Yes. I knew I liked both of them for a reason. There you go. Both end up bleeding, and Paige runs Jared at the second-level cage wall, breaking it down with Jared's face. Huge reaction to that spot. Yeah. They keep brawling, and Paige sets up a table and ends up power-slamming Jared into it. It's uh, really, really nerve-wracking watching mm. them set that up. I think they finally managed to kind of like plug it a little bit into the mesh. Yeah, that's the thing, because it's not a solid surface. Yeah, they're walking on this like chain mesh, which holds up fairly well, but it's very wobbly yeah, to yeah. set the table on. It's like two or three layers, thankfully. It's not the one single layer himself. Yeah. So they finally, I think Jarrett manages to like get it plugged into the mesh when he's fighting Paige over it, and then Paige grabs him and power slams him to it so they can do it safely. Yes. <laughs> Jarrett oddly moves first, and they crawl outside. Jarrett goes to throw Paige off of the cage, but Paige counters with a back elbow and both are down. Jarrett again goes to get up first, and I swear you can actually hear Paige grunt, Stay down! (laughs) (laughs) I could believe that. Jarrett slumps, so Paige gets up first and shatters a serving tray on his head. Arquette climbs to the second level, then to the third, and finally to the top, as the other two brawl. The announcers are very confused about this, apparently not having listened to Paige's promo earlier where he told Arquette to do exactly that. Yeah. (laughs) Paige tries to hit the diamond cutter on Jarrett onto a chair, but Mike Awesome interrupts. So Paige punches him in the balls and hits the diamond cutter on him onto the chair. Awesome actually turns the wrong way, taking it more on his back. He takes it like with Canyon's move in the match. Still looks good. No, it does, yeah. Jarrett and Paige climb to level three. They fight in Level 3's cage, which is full of guitars, and shatter many of them against the walls of the cage. Do they ever draw a dime, though? <laughs> Paige hands a guitar to Arquette for insurance, 
and Jarrett punches Paige in the crotch, but Paige manages to slam the cage door on his head as he falls. We get a great couple of shots showing the sheer size of the cage from below and from above. Mm -hmm. Excellent camera work here. Paige climbs, and Jarrett grabs a guitar and climbs too. Arquette looks at Jarrett, but suddenly hits Paige with the guitar. What? Paige is dazed, and Jarrett hits him too, knocking him down, then climbs, beckoned by Arquette, and takes the belt for the victory. New world champion, Jeff Jarrett. Unfortunately, that means we have to listen to Jarrett's theme again. Oh, yeah. Down on level two, Mike Awesome has Paige and tries the Awesome Bomb. But Canyon interrupts, only to be hurled from the second level of the cage all the way down to the entrance ramp, which does at least appear to cave in like a crash mat. Yes. I think this might have been why we had that kind of weird spot with Kurt Hennig, mm-hmm. where he almost slammed Stasiak onto the ramp, then sold his back instead. I'm pretty sure he was setting up too close to it and realized he was about to ruin the gimmick spot. Gotcha. That could very, yeah, yeah. I could see that. Because it feels like such a strange spot in that match. Yeah. So that I was looking for an explanation. Fair enough. The fall gets a big reaction, but this is, again, the very same arena where Owen Hart died from a huge fall not quite a full year ago. Yeah. This is not the same fall. No. That was a fall from a malfunctioning safety line, not from a cage. They were not referencing that fall. No. They probably didn't even think about that fall. No. But all the same, a spot like that in the very arena where Owen Hart died less than a year after his death is just something they should have reconsidered. Mm -hmm, For sure. It's in poor taste. Yeah. Especially with the commentators calling for help for the Fallen Canyon. Right, yeah. I do not want to sound like I'm implying that they intentionally referenced Owen Hart's death or anything like that. I just think they just didn't think it through. Yeah, for sure. Awesome goes up to celebrate with Jarrett as Arquette climbs down. I don't blame you, buddy. I wouldn't want to be up that high any longer than I had to be either. <laughs> no. Thoughts on this one? It's a somewhat confusing match for a lot of reasons. It's a decent enough match beginning uh, on the first level. Obviously, DDP and Jarrett at this point have worked together at least a handful of times, so it's not surprising they have good chemistry. They work similar styles as well. Jeff Jarrett definitely able to work through DDP's playbook. Mm-hmm. Extensive playbook. Yes. Oh, yes, of course. Probably at least six binders for this match. I would imagine. <laughs> at least two per level, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, the only awkward bit is the fact that Arquette is like always in the slightly in the way in these big spots. Like He throws Jared into him at one point and doesn't seem to care. Mm-hmm. It's this huge area and somehow you're always in the wrong spot. It's yeah. weird. Like, when they're fighting on the outside, maybe just get in the middle of the ring. Or vice versa. Mm-hmm. I think what they're kind of going for is playing with the idea that he's actually on Jarrett's side. So they're trying to play with the idea that he's intentionally distracting to DDP. Maybe. But it doesn't quite work out that way. It's like, because they don't add in that DDP really is, like, actually reacting to when he gets hit... Like, there's one bit where Arquette comes over to check on Paige, and Paige ducks and Jarrett hits Arquette. Mm -hmm. And I could see that being one. You can kind of sell that as Arquette was trying to distract or actually trying to hold Paige, but be Mm. subtle about it. Maybe, yeah. But if that's what they were going for, it was so subtle that it just doesn't register. Yeah. And given the four-entry scenes of Far, it's hard to imagine too much subtlety here. Yeah. (laughs) Subtle in that outfit did not go together. (laughs) No, no, fair, fair enough. If this was a singles match without all this extra stuff, 
they could and I imagine did work really well together. Mm-hmm. But the gimmick match is more of a hindrance in a lot of ways than a help. They're working against the match rather than the match accentuating what they're doing. I don't think it ruins it, but his match is just really hard to keep track of when you have... At one point, you have them on level 2 and then Arquette down on level 1, and there's also a third level above them. Mm-hmm. We need a, need a flowchart for this thing, and you really shouldn't for a wrestling match Okay, a lot of times. <laughs> but given its reputation... It's not as bad as I thought it was going to be, I will say that. Mm-hmm. I think because it's, again, DDP and Jeff Jarrett working most of this match, the inner workings of the match seem fine. They're just working with this convoluted structure, and here's a here's a room full of weapons, and you know, here we're going to a table spot on top of a cage, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. The tail turn at the end is interesting, because like you talk about it, it seems like they definitely rushed through this whole thing on this show. Mm-hmm. And when they get into explaining it, it's not really much better. I guess it kind of works because you have DEP specifically tell him to do something and then it turns against him. So it's the good guy doing something you think is smart and of course it's turned against him poorly. Yeah. yeah. It's not a super surprising he'll turn if the execution is decent. Mm-hmm. I actually felt like this match was quite fun. Mm-hmm. At the very least, far more fun than it had any right to I'll be. I agree with that. Yes. It can't be taken seriously. But at the same time, Jared and DDP put on quite a show. They are perhaps over-reliant on props, but it's still filled with big stunts that mostly go off without a hitch. Yeah. The biggest botch I can point to is Mike Awesome not quite facing the right way on a diamond cutter, and the dude's coming down on a chair. I can understand maybe not wanting to take that on your face. Right, right. (laughs) Otherwise, the only major mark against things is Jared doing a surprisingly poor job of selling at times. He repeatedly gets up before Paige after Paige did a really big move to him. It's it's quite strange. One major question, though. Yeah. If Jarrett and Arquette are actually allies the whole time, which I think is the story here, mm-hmm. why did they spend most of the early match clearly working against each other? There's some spots, like I said, that you can see another way, like where Arquette checks on Paige and you can maybe reason he's trying to hold him, and Jarrett hitting him is an accident. But in other cases, you really can't explain it away. And Arquette takes a good amount of punishment because of Jeff Jarrett. Right, yeah. He takes some because of Paige, too, but much more clearly accidentally. Yeah. I think maybe it comes down to neither side respecting David Arquette. Yeah. So they're willing to beat him up a little bit. And he's willing to take being beaten up a bit to get what he wants out of this. I guess, yeah. Aside from that, though, this is actually a really fun spectacle. It's utterly ridiculous, but it's the good kind of ridiculous. Yeah, I I can see it leaning that way. Yeah. The ending is a needless swerve, and the commentators even call it the ultimate swerve, which, just no. No. But the match as a whole is actually pretty good. A bad idea, but the participants do their best to make it actually entertaining. They take something that should not have in any way worked and actually make a totally watchable match out of it. Mm Mm-hmm. I can see your point on it's a bit of a mess at times. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard to determine at points where you should be watching, and there's a bunch going on. Right. But for all of that, it actually ends up quite fun. I can see your point of view on that, yeah. It's DDP versus Jeff Jarrett, ultimately. And I can tell what their objective is. I can tell when they're getting closer to it, further away from it. Sure, there's tons going on, but... I can still actually get into this match. If I leave aside all the crap that happened before this match that is utterly stupid, and all the crap that I'm sure is going to happen after this match that I'm sure will be utterly stupid, and if I ignore the fact that this match probably was responsible for at least like $10 million of that like 60-something million dollar loss Mm -hmm. that WSW takes in the year 2000, 
I can enjoy this match. Yeah. And that is a lot of stuff to ignore, but I can actually do it and enjoy this match. Fair enough. (laughs) One thing that gets to me about this is, okay, so it's a triple cage match, but the goal to win is to escape all three cages, climb on top of the collective pile, and grab the belt. Yes. Why isn't the belt just in the third cage? Yeah, that that's a fair point. Also, like it's it's weird that they climb up inside the first cage to get to the inside yeah. the second cage, but then the second cage you have to go outside and climb up. So presumably the third cage could just be entirely skipped. Yeah, exactly. There's not a patch up going up to the top cage. Yeah. Right. So it definitely feels a little bit weird that it's a three-tiered cage where one of the cages could just happen to end up extraneous, but it just doesn't because they happen to go in there. Right, and so if they hadn't broken the wall off that one cage, would they had to, like, fight and then, like, stop, open the door, and then climb the outside other one, um, I guess? Yeah, like, there is a door on the second cage. Right, right. Page cuts it open with the bolt cutters. So presumably they just leave that way, but yeah, there's bits about the planning here that could definitely have been better. You know, DDP needed a little bit more time with his binders on this one, but yeah. But I, I think it's another example of if you're gonna pick a guy to do a match like this, Page is a really good one to select. Mm. You know that he's going to be able to put something together that he will have a plan for this match, right? Where he can make a story out of it, and probably because they've rehearsed it about a billion times, it's gonna work. Yeah. So you, know, if you give someone else this concept that is more towards the uh, calling the match in the ring sort of All sort right. of performer. I don't think this one ends up working any no, I, here as well as it does. Yeah, it's a bizarre spectacle. I could see it coming around to being enjoyable. It didn't, mm-hmm. For me, it didn't quite work, but maybe if I watch it again later at some point, especially not at the end of this whole show, yes. that's also another factor as that's, well. That is the other thing. I watched this match on its own mm-hmm. on, my, on my second watch through. I watched it to take my show notes completely on its own, so I was not already in a really bad mood. Right. Because this show, leading up to this point, will kill you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Following Nitro, the new book people come to the ring, celebrate how great everything went, including newly healed David Arquette, wearing a ridiculously bright, like, crazy outfit of, like, a thousand colors in his jacket. (laughs) He tries to kind of heal promo, and they try to explain between him and Bischoff, and Vic Russo that everything you saw going from the tag team match through to Slamboree was all an elaborate plan. In the very beginning, Arquette was against DDP, apparently. And that, that's just bizarre. That at least maybe explains why he would even try to get a pin in a match where he knows if he wins, he gets the world title off his friend. And it's supposed to sort of make it okay that they had Tank Abbott job out to David Arquette, because he, he was in on it too, apparently. He was faking, yeah. Yeah. But still... So the blow-up to Arquette's involvement in this is Arquette's heel promo. DP gives Arquette the diamond cutter, and he's never seen again. At least part of the story goes. He appears one more time, but we'll cover it later. Yeah. So that was the easy part. That's just the DDP and Arquette thing. Now let's cover the world title scene. And again, I'll mind you back from the beginning. I'm covering the time between the end of Slamboree and before Grand Rick and Bash. So like three or four weeks. Yes. First off, Rick Flair would get his world title match early. Okay. Instead of the Great American Bash, he said he might leave forever because his son betrayed him. Of course, he doesn't. He comes back, wrestles Jeff Jarrett, and wins the world title. <laughs> that is Nitro eight days from this show, so a week in the next one. After the match, he seems to have a heart attack or some sort of injury like that. He doesn't really. Yeah. 
So they open the next Nitro by stripping of the world title. That'd be Bishop Russo. Okay. They award the title to Jeff Jarrett. <laughs> yep. The physical belt will be stolen by Nash <laughs> to set up a world title match with Kevin Nash against Jeff Jarrett. The Thunder, after that happened, after he used the belt to set up a match, they'd have a triangle match. Kevin Nash, Jeff Jarrett, and Scott Steiner thrown in there, and Kevin Nash would win the world title there. Less than a week later, Nitro begins. Kevin Nash gives the world title back to Ric Flair because he shouldn't have tripped in the first place. Okay. On that same show, David Flair shows up and holds the rest of Ric Flair's family hostage, including his mother and his brother. Okay. Not his sister, who does not want to be on the show. <laughs> Thankfully, it's better things go on in the future. So, because of that, Ric Flair is forced to defend the title that very same show against Jeff Jarrett, where he loses the world title to Jeff Jarrett. Okay. So, yes, that's how you get the 15th and 16th of Ric Flair's 16-time world championship. Wow. And I counted six world title changes, if we count the vacancy. Uh, that's about right, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Even with two shows a week, that's a lot. Yeah, there should not be more than one world title change a week. There should not even be one world title change yeah. a week. There should definitely not be more than one yeah. world title change There shouldn't a week. be two on the same show. Yes. Which there is in the last one. So all that to say, having David Arquette win the world title was not the worst thing they had done to the WCW no. world title. <laughs> Correct. Wow. Not on pay-per-view, by the way. No one's paying extra to see this. Right. So, for, for Great American Bash, is it then Ric Flair's actual match? It is Jeff Jarrett versus Kevin Nash, during, after all that. Okay. So, we also don't get the match that was promised at the Great American Bash, because we got it on free TV, like, a week after this show instead. Correct, yes. Yeah, R- Ric Flair fights his son there on pay instead. So, Kevin Nash, who wins the world title after first deal with the physical belt, and then just gives it back to Ric Flair, who refuses to lose it, then challenges the game for the title. I guess he was like, well, Rick had his chance. <laughs> yeah, I, t- I tried. I was a good guy. I gave him a belt, but yeah. That's where we are. Man, that's that's bad. Yeah. Oof. So we shouldn't fail to mention, reportedly, Arquette, who was a wrestling fan himself, Correct. was not particularly fond of the idea of this entire angle. No, he, he supposedly shot it down when they over, yeah. overwrote him, yeah. He was, he was convinced to do it, at least, because Russo insisted the publicity would be good for WCW, reportedly. Yes, that's the story, yeah. And also, reportedly, he actually donated his WCW salary to the families of Owen Hart and Brian Pillman, who had died in the years prior, mm-hmm. along with Darren Drozdov, who had been paralyzed in an accident. Yes. All told, he sounds like a pretty good guy. Yeah. You know, he may have been involved in a pretty terrible angle, but I'd not hold that against the no. actual person. Uh, him, no, for sure not. <laughs> we again see Canyon on the ramp and Jarrett with the title. And Slambury 2000 is done. Finally. Yes. So overall thoughts on Slambury 2000, brought to you by Western Union Pay Us. <laughs> it's not a good show. It has an unfortunately botchy beginning. The terrible hardcore match that came to will be serious or funny. It has the overall theme of the young guy basically trying to directly copy the veteran stars or trying to quote unquote franchise their ass. <laughs> Whatever the hell that means. There's good moments on here. Some people sort of shine in spite of that. I think Sting looks pretty good throughout the show. But this feel of the luster being taken off of wrestling stars and their promotion itself 
to be gritty and realistic. Mm-hmm. It can't be Hulk Hogan wrestling. It has to be terrible A and his F-U-N-B vest and constantly calling him Terry. Just yeah, the announcers are constantly saying Terry Balea. It's, yeah. Like, it's bizarre. Yeah. Flair is in any of his cool stuff. So much stripped away. But then you have this weird disconnect. After all of that, you suddenly have this cartoonish cage. Yeah. David Arquette dressed like a weird lightning flame guy. And then all this crazy shenanigans with a triple cage and a guitar room and everything. It's like two different people booked parts of the show. Mm-hmm. It's a long slog of the show to get through for me, with some good moments peppered in there, whether it's parts in a match itself or a match that delivers until they screw it up. Also, because it's 2000, we have lots of ball shots. Yes. I lost kind of made the word, but at least a dozen, let's just say. There's a lot. <laughs> yes. And constant interference. Like, constant, constant interference. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I wouldn't recommend the show as a whole. I think there's some good stuff on here. And there's some that's maybe a good spectacle to watch. And you can maybe enjoy the fact that people like DDP can make something watchable out of sheer and lunacy and insanity. Yes. Crazy cage. But, yeah, it's not a good show. That's a terrific point that it's... It's it's a show where they're trying to be like, we're realistic now. We're talking about people's actual names and, and all that, yeah. We're dealing with serious stuff of people, you know, being driven out of the company and other people coming in to take their places and yeah. you know, all this sort of stuff. And then you cap it all off with like the biggest cartoon spectacle that you possibly could. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's interesting. It's interesting yeah. on, on that front. Yeah. This was not a good show. Mm-hmm. Like you said, there's moments where it gets watchable, and there's a few where it can be quite fun. But taken as a whole, it is a real massive struggle to get through. Yes. Though few of the matches are absolute disasters, most of them are played by an array of botches to an extent I am not sure that we have ever seen, Mm. at least not so consistently across an entire show. Yeah. It's like everybody is the skyscrapers versus the big cat and Motor City Madman from Starcade 90. Even Sting has a botch in his match. Yeah. That is rare. That is, Syria. At least the promos went well overall. There were a good number of them, and though they were short, most did add some value to the show. The video packages could have been better with actual narration instead of rapid cuts between clips, but they were much, much better than the 1999 show's completely meaningless This Wrestler Exists packages. Yeah, right? That's <laughs> <laughs> true. I felt like I at least got a sense of where the stories were going into the matches. So they succeeded at their purpose. Commentary, unfortunately, was awful. Yes. They made a couple good points here and there, but those were largely lost in a constant stream of offensive comments coming largely, but sadly not exclusively, from Mark Madden. Yeah. Who is one of the single worst parts of year 2000 WCW and seems to think that being a heel commentator is all about finding the single worst, most disrespectful, most offensive thing you can find to say at basically any given moment. Yeah. His comments about the women on the show in particular are awful, and I know he's playing a villain, but he's playing it wrong. Being a good heel wrestling announcer is about making excuses for the bad guys and maybe a clever, slightly mean spirited joke. It's not about being a genuinely awful human being who no one would even want to talk to. Right. Tony seems to outright try to ignore him at times, and there's points where I swear I heard him mutter under his breath. (laughs) 
It's not the good kind of fun argument like he had with Heenan. Yeah. This team does not work. No. People talk about this show because of the Triple Cage match and the David Arquette World Champ angle. But really, though those are ridiculous, most of the raw, unadulterated stupid about that angle is before or after this actual show. True. And the match itself, for me, was a neat watch. It's a massive waste of money in a year where WCW could not afford to lose much more. No. But the angle did not kill WCW on its own, though it probably drives one of the nails into the coffin. Yeah, for sure. The performers, though, should not be blamed. They did their jobs. Yeah. Overall, Slamboree 2000 is a show full of poor ideas, some of which are at least executed acceptably, but many of which are executed massively poorly. It's a show in which nobody seems quite on, nobody performing quite up to par, even some of WCW's best. They're trying. Unlike last year, people do seem to try to put on a good, exciting match. Yeah. It's just, they don't succeed, and the show is a bit of a mess as a result. Entertaining at points, but a massive struggle to get through in the whole. Like Al suggested, if you decide to watch this show, just watch parts. Yes. Pick out one or two bits that sound kind of interesting. Watch those. Go on with your life. Yeah. Any further thoughts on it? No, oh, I think I'm that is a funny about it, yeah. <laughs> we, are, we are done discussing the Sambury 2000. Yes. All right. Match of the night and MVP, then. Al, your match of the night. So, yeah, there's a lot of bad in this show, obviously. There's a lot of matches that I think could have turned out well, as we discussed. Something missing here, or something missing there. Something that quite worked there. I really have a hard time deciding who mine's going to be. I think I'm going to go with, as a whole, the most entertaining match to me. You know, I kept my interest the most because it was varied in action. Even if it didn't like what it ended, I think for me it's got to be Mike Awesome versus Chris Canyon. That's what I would have guessed that you would probably go for, honestly. I almost went Sting and Vampiro, but yeah. more thing about it, it is, it is so back and forth and confusing. Yeah. Awesome and Canyon is, is more even. Yeah. It kept me engaged. Fully yeah. fought. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I kind of feel we were going to go. But okay. For my part, I did consider Mike Awesome versus Canyon. Sure. And I think, honestly, that is probably the best pure match on the show. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to give it to the Triple Cage match of Doom. Yeah, I saw that coming. I mean, look at the thing. Just yeah. look at it. This should have been a disaster. But Paige, Jarrett, and Arquette really did their best to make it entertaining. And if nothing else, it is a crazy spectacle. The angle and the ending are stupid. But the match is nuts. But it's the kind of nuts you can only get from WCW. Perhaps, thankfully. Yeah. In the end, it entertained me, and it really had no right to be entertaining. Yeah. So I, I got to give it to that. Mm-hmm. It's it's the totally unique match on the show. Yeah, it's, 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 it's what John would have picked, for sure. Yes. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that, yeah. All right, MVP? One of the themes of the show is them trying to just, like take the interesting aspects away from characters you know and like. So you have you know, Hogan in his black, Flair in his boring dress clothes and even Luger to a certain extent feels generally more sedated with his mm-hmm. characters. He's going to play uh, concerned character, so he's not as fun to watch. So for me, I'm going to be to the person that I think managed to escape all that, even if his match isn't perfect, and that is Sting. Okay. He has the big, flashy Sting character yeah. still, yeah. He keeps his character. He's brilliant Jake in the ring. Obviously, he has the 
two bits that are kind of off, you know, basically missing with the pipe, which I can understand, even if it's a gimmick pipe. And then the tricky spot to do, either ram it into his face or you miss him. So. Right, yeah. He picked the safer of the two. Even if his match itself wasn't as engaging because it was so lopsided, I think him, best one on top, was entertaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sting is clearly trying, and Sting is dedicating himself to putting on the fullest performance that he can for the fans, and that's that's great. Yeah. Go ahead. I know where this is going, but go ahead. David Arquette. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> the promos, man. He may not have liked doing this angle, but he did his best with the role that he was given. And he did a good job portraying fear in a way that is not normally seen in wrestling. Yeah. There's a palpable sense of nervousness about him in every appearance. And it's not the comedic fear of the heel manager that we more commonly get, but a realistic fear of someone unprepared for what he's getting into. It's a really strong performance. And when you add in him being up for some pretty big stunts in the actual match. Yeah. He comes off quite surprisingly well. Yeah. I guess it kind of carries on a bit of a string for us. I think we've given the celebrity MVP on more than one of the prior shows, too. Yeah, I believe so. <laughs> it, it's where, like, when we were watching the show originally, I wasn't really thinking that way. But on the second watch through, I was just like, he really does a lot to make something of this weird angle that they've all been placed into. And, uh, is just such a different performance leading up to that match and in the match itself that yeah. I, I found myself getting drawn in a little bit more than I expected. Fair enough. You know, when am I going to get the chance to give David Arquette a MVP? There's one other show, but yeah, yeah. probably not. Probably won't in that case, yeah. I think he deserves it for the work he put in on this. All right, fair enough. And that wraps up our review of Slambury 2000. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about the Slamborees as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible, which is only a couple more than the number of world title changes yeah. in the weeks between this show and Great American Bash. That's, that's true, yes. <laughs> And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance of pay-per-view figures and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. And that is the last Slamboree. Next up, we'll take a look back over the entire run of the Slamboree series. And boy, were there ever some changes over that time. Oh yeah. We'll discuss the series as a whole, try to figure out its themes or identity, discuss our favorite and least favorite moments, and hand out some awards. These discussions are always a lot of fun, so please tune in next time for that and to find out what series we'll be doing next. Mm-hmm. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. Oh, I wrote it down. Uh, I was really have my notes to down for that one. That's okay. I wa- did watch it. I just didn't, I just didn't go back and write it down. Anyways, I remember, I remember what I was going to say. Um...